Today's episode of the Hidden Figures podcast is brought to you by Nubian Skin. Nubian Skin is a lingerie, hosiery and intimates brand for women of colour. Frustrated by the lack of suitable nude lingerie and hosiery to match her skin tone, Ade Hassan decided it was time for a different kind of nude. So for all you beautiful women, next time you need something in your nude, head to nubianskin.com and enter the code HIDDENFIGURES in all caps for 10% off your purchase. This code is valid for all products and the offer ends at midnight on the 30th of June. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Hidden Figures podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have um, David McQueen um, and also a guest co-host, Salome. So, Salome, could you just introduce introduce yourself quickly? Hi, um, I'm Salome. Um, I'm a lawyer turned creative. Um, I do many things. I, I paint. I have a... Um, lifestyle brands, doing skincare and massage candles, and I contract as a lawyer every now and then. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, I love I love to travel, so I'm essentially building a working life around my interests and having a work life balance that's more than just the nine to five, just a bit more dynamic than that. Wonderful, wonderful, and um, yeah, like I said, I've got David McQueen, um, who is a uh, boy. You know what, actually, it's probably better if no, I girl, I want to. I want to hear what you say. I want to hear how you see me. I guess, I guess from my perspective, I'd call you a, um, a, a, a lifestyle coach, a life coach. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, uh, you speak in schools. Mm-hmm. You um, present TV presenter, okay. podcast host, inspirational speaker, motivational speaker. It's quite, I mean, all three of us seem to be doing a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know if no, I don't know if that's a I'm good, always I'm a always intrigued how people perceive me, so that's that's all right. So I run I run two companies. Yeah. Um one called Narratively, and that's where I either speak or teach people how to speak and present better. Uh spe- specifically within the corporate space. I used to run a company up until this year called Magnificent Generation, which a lot of people would have known me for mm-hmm. you speaking. I did that for twenty five years, but I've parked that now. And I've recently started a new company called Legacy Seventy One which is an incubator specifically focused on black founders who want to scale their businesses. Okay. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, So, like I said off camera, the way the podcast works is we kind of start, go back and and kind of build our way up to to the present day. So the the first question I wanted to ask was um, where you grew up. I I think, I I might be wrong, but I think you're from northwest London. I am indeed. um, which is where I'm from as well. So just kind of where you grew up, what it was like, your, your childhood almost. Okay. I'm uh, born in St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. Yeah. Um, spent my first formative years in Harlesden. Uh, son of a Grenadian and a Bajan. Okay. Um, and uh, again, spent, uh, I had a very, very good childhood. My parents were always, uh, they were quite driven. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed what I was doing then from 10 till uh, my mid-20s. I lived in Harrow. Um, and went to school and college in in Harrow. Um, my first, my early years of life, I was always. Um, my mum would call me precocious. Okay. My dad would call me adventurous. Um, <laughs> and I, I always, I've always been a person that I like to challenge the status quo. And even though I may get it wrong, and sometimes I may lose friends along the way, I've always loved being able to have that kind of challenge. And I was always encouraged by people around me, and I was just always surrounded by a lot of um, black professionals who always told me to aim high 
um, and that I will go out into a world where sometimes people won't believe that I can do it and they may take the colour of my skin as an issue, but never use that as a, uh, a stumbling block, but always use it as a stepping stone. Mm. So from quite a young age, did a lot of things that a lot of friends wouldn't, I mean legally, a lot of my friends <laughs> wouldn't do. So I started my first business when I was 14 in school with a okay. tuck shop. Made more money than their school. They shut me down. Yeah. Um, but I was able to buy the clothes and stuff that I really wanted yeah. to. Um, enjoyed music. I was brought up in a. Uh, I was brought up in church and loved being able to sing. But expanded that out, doing a lot of stuff out, outside as well. And music was really in my in in my blood as well. So it's always been. I've always been quite adventurous, quite curious. I don't like people telling me. Actually, I don't mind when people tell me that I can't do anything because then that pushes me to go right. You know, bum you. I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but bum you. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make sure that I can do things that you tell me that I can't do. Okay. And that's the essence, really. Okay. Got you. Mm-hmm. Well, you said Harlesden. Yes. At, as someone from Northwest London, I know. Yes. I know Harlesden. I know that in the 70s, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, it had quite a reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? Did were you exposed to that? Did Did you feel that as a, as a, as a kid or? I, so I did, but I was afraid of being beaten more than my God. dad. Yeah. I was afraid more of that than more than anything else. So yeah, I grew up in, I originally lived in um, near Furness Road, um, yeah. this school, and then I went to Stonebridge Park. Um, okay. And so we lived in um, Stonebridge Park Estate, Haskell House, I remember, before they knocked it down. Yeah, not most of it down. Uh, yeah, so most of those things, have been, most of those flats have been levelled. And um, whilst there, I think whilst there was trouble there, I think like any generation, there were... I was quite protected in that my my parents, my uncles, and even to be fair, even some of the olders or, or elders who were in who were the bit of the, on the troublesome side of who got into trouble, yeah. they would always say to me, "Not you." They used to call me bookworm, so they go, "Not <laughs> you, bookworm." Um, you know, you you stay focused on your books because we don't want you getting involved in anything that will get you in trouble. So there was always those individuals in the community as well who saw, even if I was slightly veering towards something that was bad, they would like be, nah, this is not for you, keep away. Um, so even though, that, you know, there was, it's nothing like it is now, to be fair, mm. um, but, there, you know, there was always an element of trouble going on or what have you, but I just just So what, just do you navigate. think it's worse now or it was worse yeah. then? It's worse I now? I think it's worse now. Oh, for real. Definitely. I think there were... There was a there was an unspoken code that even back in the day, if you were walking through Harlesden through Stonebridge or what have you, and you knew an elder and you knew somebody who was older, there was just an unspoken code that if I saw you as a younger and I would say, fix up son as an elder or what have you, I, you would totally get respect from me as an elder, but you all the trouble you would do is with your age mates or people around your age. Mm. And then I saw, over the years, I saw you know people that I had known from quite young were getting mugged in areas of Harlesden where as an older person they'd been walking through Stonebridge for all their life mm. and then they had to change on walking on Natchbull Road which is the main road to come mm. all, instead of c- crossing through the estate they'd come That's from Harlesden Station walk all the way up Natchbull Road and all the way down in order to get to their house because a younger generation just did not have that respect anymore mm. and then uh, and I'll be careful about this because I think um, we've always had knives in the community I just think the, the way that it's applied now, there's been a shift in the demographic. Mm. I think there's a way, uh, historically, there's a way that people would approach that differently. So say, for example, I grew up and I knew you'd go somewhere and if somebody upset you, they would have a knife and they go, I'm going to wet you. And just wetting you, they would obviously just give you a little mark. I'm not, I'm not mm. encouraging it, but I'm saying they'd give you a mark to say, right, uh, this is kind of like your warning. There isn't that sense of yeah, warning no, now. Somebody will go and it's just like... yeah. So for me, and that's the difference. Yeah. I think there was always there was always a respect. Like I would never, 
if I saw an older person in the community and if they told me off or something, I might run away and cuss them under my breath or mumble your mum or your dad or when I'm running away. Yeah. But I would never do it to their face. I would never have it where I was, I was looking in their face and say that. I would never do that. And there's a younger generation for me that doesn't have that kind of respect as a default. It's almost like you have to win it first and foremost now. And I don't, that for me is problematic. Mm. I think that social media probably plays a part in that Definitely. as well, where you are under a lot of pressure to you know, you know talk the way you know walk the talk or whatever, right? Yeah. And don't just you know if you're gonna say you're gonna do something, do it. And then there's that that essence that as soon as you've done something, essentially everyone can know about it. Yeah. And I think the younger generation are feeling that and are not really understanding how to deal with it and we don't necessarily have the tools to deal with it because we're all experiencing it at the same, same time, time yeah. and try to make sense of it. So we don't really, haven't really built systems to help them deal with this, you know, hyper, heightened sense of just attention yeah. that, that is placed on us and also that we also put out as well, yes. you know, because you all contribute to it mm, as yeah. well. I think, I think the system's there. I just think it's just a reminder of it. Okay. So, for example, the, you know, the, so both of my daughters, when they went on to, when they, obviously back in the day, when they first went onto Facebook and then my, migrated to, tw- well, my eldest migrated to Twitter and obviously then to Insta and to Snapchat, in every single platform they were on, actually my eldest was on MySpace as well, so that's going back a bit now. And she's 20, <laughs> so, gosh, it does feel like ages. Yeah. 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 My daughter's 20, I'm like, flipping out, seems like so long ago. <laughs> But one of the one of the rules we had is that when you go on there, uh, as your parent, I am paying for your phone, and I am paying for the internet. If I need to log into your account at any point in time, I can do that, unless you're paying for it. Okay, any of the equipment and the Wi-Fi that you're using in this house, don't come and have that discussion with me. This is this is really clear, and I said it to both of them. And my wife's a bit stricter than I am anyway. But it just got to a point where when my daughters would join specific social media. They would join and say, Dad, come on this platform, come on Insta, come on Snapchat. And then they would sit down and they would show me that stuff. So it was never about hiding stuff from me. And I think that value system for me is important. All my nephews, my nieces and stuff, I go, look, here's my stuff. You can go and have a look at it. If my machine's open, I don't care if you go in my DMs or what have you because I've got nothing to hide from you. And because I wanted to model that to them, I'm going to say, look, if you're going to go online, I don't want you to be afraid of stuff that's there. And I have a phrase that I've been using for a number of years. And I said it to them. I said it to my, some, my nephews, nieces, godchildren. I said it to my own children. And I, when I used to go around schools and stuff as well, I said, there's one thing about social media that you need to understand. If you don't understand that, or if you don't get a hold of the fact that they treat you as product rather than you being yourself, you will always be trying to impress other people. And it's better to be hungry for success than thirsty for attention. That's a punchline. It's definitely and they all got it. Make a bit of a clip. They all got it. <laughs> it's better to be hungry for success than thirsty for attention. And when you get that balance and understand the difference, you realize that you may have, you know, I, 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 to be fair, I junked my Twitter last week. I deleted Twitter last week and I had 14,000 odd followers. There was nothing in my soul that made me feel sad that all of a sudden there were 14,000 people that weren't following me anymore because the people who really need me and who want to get me have my number, have my email and they can get me the other 14 odd thousand people they have no interest in that and it's just amplifying things more than it should do so i think it is a constant conversation about how it plays out Mm. and obviously we've got all this stuff around uh, you know a lot of the 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 issues around youth violence at the moment is about Mm. how it's being amplified and you know the 
the the way the the, the London mayor is attacking drill, saying yeah. drill music is you know, yes, and then he's backtracking yeah. saying certain drill music yeah, and what yeah. have you. It's just it's just about the for me it's about the environment you're brought in and the constant conversations that you need to have. Mm. That for me is where. I believe the, the the difference is made, and I will. As I said, I'm a big mouse. So I will go and do that on those platforms, but using you know amazing spaces like this podcast and what have you, just repeat it. That we don't have to get lost in the source mm. if you already are the source. That's another punchline. Okay, all right. Let me check the drink. <laughs> um, so, again, going back to your childhood, you said you moved from Stonebridge to Harrow. Yes. I don't know what Harrow was like at the time yeah but at least my general knowledge of how i know it's changed a bit even more so recently but yeah. is it's a lot more leafy um it's, it's it's certainly got a much lower concentration of black people um i know personally I, i'm i mentioned off air that i grew up in collindale and i yeah. moved to mill hill um what was the kind of experience of growing up in a very predominantly black area you're surrounded by um lots of other Caribbean people, um, to Harrow, which is like a completely different world. It's a lot more leafy. Mm. Um, I don't know what the ethnic makeup was like, but it's, I, I'm assuming it wasn't anything like it was no. in Stonebridge. So ha- how was that now? So we were the majority, obviously, in Stonebridge. It was majority yeah. um, Caribbean and then increasingly uh, became more uh, uh, West African. Um, and when I moved to uh, to Harrow, we were definitely the minority. Yeah. And it took a bit of adjusting too. And fortunately, I moved in primary, so there was that little bit of adjustment. I remember in primary school, I probably was one of three black guys in my year mm. and probably uh, six black people in the year. And that was like, rah, like... And I'm you know, guessing what, that <laughs> this is coming from a place where... Coming from like a place where we majority, dominated yeah. it. And I walk into a school where the, the melanin level just drops, <laughs> right? <Significantly, laughs> it just descended yeah. and plummeted. <laughs> but the, on the flip side, where I lived in Harrow, I, so I lived in Sudbury Hill. Okay, and so yeah. Sudbury Hill's it's right on the border yeah. of... Harrow, Ealing and Brent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, where I was, and especially like I played a lot of football and sports, over there on the Brent side of Sudbury Hill, all the roads, I remember the Rosebank, Maybank, Fernbank, those roads were full up of black friends that yeah. I knew. Down the road in Ealing and Greenford, there were a lot of other, other there. When you move more towards Harrow, then it became a little bit more, you know, people who were more like that, <laughs> and you know, they didn't seem to have the same amount of melanin, you know. <laughs> um, and walking to school up the hill, man, you know, trying to see a black person on the way to school was like, oh, uh, yeah. okay. But you just, I think, like, with everything, my parents really said, be a chameleon wherever you go. And always learn how to adapt. Mm. Learn how to observe people first and then learn their nuances. Learn the way how they navigate the world. And, and while sometimes being in school, you know, I'd never been called a coon before or a nigger and all mm. that kind of stuff. And, and my initial reaction was like, from you call me that, I'm going to knock you the, the yeah. hell out. I remember the David, mind your language. Okay, I'm going to knock you the hell out. You can say whatever you want. Okay, I'm spot. just, I know yeah. but it's being filmed and my mum might see it. So, um, <laughs> but just being, just being aware that um, initially, I would I would want to knock you out because, you know, again, growing up in Stonebridge, you'd have a fight. Yeah. The next day, you wouldn't think anything about it. You'd probably yeah. get caned or smacked by a teacher, but you wouldn't think anything about it. Here, it was very different. Mm. Um, but well, the fortunate thing was is we had weekend schools, which were Pan-African schools. Plus, I used to go to church on the weekend. You went to weekend school? Yeah, I went to... We, we used to have... Back in the day... I, I want to talk about this, actually. Remind me so I don't forget it. Okay. But we used to have maths and English on a weekend. So mm-hmm. in schools, they teach you something. And, you know, we grew up, like, you sing the times table. You go to school, they go, no, you're not singing the times table. That's not how you got it. And I'm like, mm. two times two is four. <laughs> and they go, no, you're not allowed to do that. 
And then we go to our weekend supplementary schools and sometimes in the week, and they'd be like singing the same way. Plus they would teach us about our history, mm. our Caribbean and African history. Um, so Pan-African schools were quite widespread across West yeah. London when I was growing up. Um, and I think that allowed us to retain a sense of pride and mm. culture because when we went into schools, often the teachers didn't understand that. Mm. Like I remember I went, in, I went into primary school and they put me in like the bottom set in maths. Mm. My dad was like, are you mad? And we went and took a maths test and I got the third highest in the year. That mm. happened to me as well, actually. Yeah. That happened to me. They put me in the bottom set. And my mum, who was a contractor at the time, took a day off work. And now I'm a contractor, so I actually You can appreciate what that what means. That yeah. meant. She was like, test her. And I was in top set for everything. And I ended up totally. getting... I, I got the student of the year for my GCSEs. Mm -hmm. Imagine, it put me in bottom yeah. set. Just because, yeah. oh yeah. Because they, they don't understand it. No. They don't understand it. <laughs> And for me, the, 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 the scary thing about it is that systematically, when people make an assumption about you, they don't re especially in schools, they don't realize the knock-on effect that it can have with you as an individual. 100%. And if you don't have the system or the, or the mindset or the people around you, you go, do you know what? Forget all that negativity. You are an amazing young woman or an young, amazing young man. Just apply yourself with the skills and talents that you have. That makes a big difference. Unfortunately, I had that network around me Mm. Um, uh, some didn't yeah but having that network around me just made me go right you know what no one's going to tell me that I can't achieve yeah, no people one people who are going to advocate for you yes and yeah. that's that's key yeah and that for me is one of the reasons why in all the years that I was doing a lot of work in school and in education I would go generally for the whole population and I love working with all um, you know with all the ethnicities but the black students would always find me out in whatever school I went to. Mm. They would always come afterwards and they were like, oh, first of all, they go, oh, so you're a preacher. And I go, no, I used to go to <laughs> church, but that's, you know, that's, that's my style and what have you. And then I would say to them, I go, look, I'm going to have a conversation with you guys. I know that, you know, in school you might get pissed off or ticked off with the, uh, with the teachers or the system, but here's a game. It's a game. And what you've got to do is you have to play it to win, but play it on your terms and understand how to navigate the system. If every time you get knocked down, you react negatively, they've won mm. and you lose and it goes back down every single step and it will, it will affect you in terms of your earning, you want to run your own business, you want to have your own house, all the rest of it. Play the game so it always works in your favour. Mm. And for me, it's important for us as, uh, as a black community, and I use the, the big capital B black to talk about African and Caribbean diaspora, to encourage a younger generation to go, look, play the system to, to your advantage. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd actually, you, you said I should remind you to yes. talk about it. I assume you wanted to talk about it later, but these kind of Pan-African schools. Um, interestingly, I, I think I was watching an interview with Carlin. He yes. was talking about the importance of that when he was growing up. Yeah. Uh, both Salome and I actually just went to a wedding like a week ago, and right. the bride, one of the bridesmaids, they knew each other from a Pan-African school that was on the estate that I grew up on. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, one, like, what what the impact and importance that was for you and your generation at the time and two what what impact having a vacuum of that now what impact do you think that's now having on people today I think there's a sense of pride mm. from knowing where you come from uh, one of the biggest benefits for me um, going to a pan-african school was historically the 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 primary or the the big um, demographic, black demographic, and especially in, in West London, where I grew up, was Caribbean. So it was primarily mm. um, Northern uh, Caribbean, so Jamaican and Antiguans, and you have Bajans, Grenadians, Trinidadians, what have you. 
And then there was a slow influx of West Africans who started mm -hmm. to, from, from Ghana and uh, primarily first, and then from Nigeria, who started to be part of the communities um, primarily in Brent and Ealing, and to a smaller extent, but not so much in Harrow. And there was always conflict between mm. Caribbeans and Africans growing up. And I would be like, hold on a minute, we're all the same here. Yeah. We've got a common enemy and it's not <laughs> each other, all right? While we're here fighting each other and calling each other jamos and boo-boos, right? while we're doing all this and using all these pejorative terms towards each other, there are a couple of white kids over there who are enjoying life, who are going to go out there, going to go and get some really good jobs. We need to be able to support each other. And, and, and part of that, you know, I grew up learning about Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana and, and um, Patrice Lumumba in Congo mm. and, and, and Fela Kuti and, and Nelson Mandela and all this richness. And then on, on the other side, you know, you, you learned of C.J. Walker in, in, um, uh, in, in Trinidad um, and you learned of all these scholars and historians. And, and this, wasn't even, this wasn't even Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. We, mm. were, we hadn't even touched America yet. Mm. This is purely Caribbean and Africa. Mm. And having that sense of pride of, you know, I know some people say, call it hotep now, right? And they're kind of yeah, like, it's a pejorative term. Yeah. But back in the day... Yeah, yeah, yeah. someone yeah. called me a hotep recently. You, and you I was really like, yeah, Because right? I, I, actually, I actually think that it's, it's a shame that it has been adopted yeah. as a pejorative term. Because for me, back in the day, when I saw, specifically, when I saw a, a black woman of whatever shade she was from... Um, uh, from the darkest to the lightest, when I saw a, a black woman, I would say, hey, how are you doing, princess? Mm. And that was my way of greeting you because I'm like, no matter what the world says to you, I see you as a princess. That's why I got called a hotep because I right. called someone a queen and then they yeah. were like, oh, you're a hotep. And then I found out that you meant like, like you're trying to use that terminology to yeah. try and get girls and I was just that put me off completely was, so now I, I, I can't be it. calling girls queens you were actually triggered by that I, I was so triggered anyway I still no I still call I don't care because I'm old enough to, to not to care yeah. but I still call people princess, young um, black women princesses and queens Yeah. I call my wife my queen I call my daughters my princess so when I see them I go hey how are you doing queen or hey how are you doing princess mm. because for me it's a reminder in a world where a lot of black beauty is all, you know sometimes pushed down or played mm. down I wanted to say to my sisters you're royalty Mm. your royalty and, and, and if I can be really really frank here yeah, uh, way too many of my male black friends felt that beauty was in white skin with going out with white girls mm. and I you know I, I was always of the opinion I'm going to get myself in trouble here but let's speak the truth yeah. I was always of the opinion if I'm going to step outside the furthest I'm going is like Indian and Bengali and then I'm coming <laughs> back in alright um, and, and what it was is because there was this constant messaging Mm. That this skin or this, you know, is better. And even now, so my wife is, you know, my wife is um, what people call, she's of a lighter shade, fairer skinned. And even when I started dating, her guys were like, yeah, yeah, you got a light, you got a brownie. Yeah. And I was like, that's never the reason why yeah. I was with that woman. And so for me, that, having that sense of where you come from mm. was, was always going to be uh, uh, an importance for me and the way that I navigated this space and the way I wanted to pass it on to the youngers who, were, mm. who would look up to me um, to be important. And, and so coming back to the point here, um, uh, and, I, and I actually did, interestingly, I, I heard the, the Carla interview on Friday. I saw the, oh, yeah. the one with him and James O'Brien. Yeah, it's a really good interview. It's a really, really, good, really good one. Good but I do believe there was something about being a how you navigate the world when you had that. It doesn't mean that it will, everything will get quelled. Mm. But when, you know, it's not saying that, you know, the, the black community are going to be superior as soon as we've got, you know, a Saturday school. Because, look, we've got lots of churches and we've still got problems. Yeah. Uh, you Tons know, we've still got mosques and faith Tons groups and, and we, st we still got problems. Yeah. 
But I do believe that it was part of the pride you felt of being part and parcel of that community. And yes, mm. there are other things that will be there to kind of like knock that. But if it's one thing that adds in favor of you being proud to be black, I'm, I wish and I hope um, that, uh, I, I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it out there now. I'm having a couple of conversations under the radar with people who are still in education to say, look, I think it would really, really be good to rekindle this whole concept of being able to provide supplementary schools. Let's run it in our churches. Let's mm. run it in our mosques. Let's, you know, and again, the only thing I will say about running it in churches and mosques and other faith groups is don't use it as just as a means to kind of like pull people into church. Yeah. I think it's nice to have it there. And I think if you want people to come to God or Allah or whatever, that's fine. But the primary reason is it's to instill that pride yeah. and that education. But what? Because we've got so much space in the community. Yeah. And, and, and if, if I'm going to say it as a starting point, I, I think that it will accelerate more in West African communities than it will in traditional Caribbean ones. Why'd you say that? Because I believe that the, there is something, there is a, there is a, there's a current desire in West African community, in Ghana, I'm going to speak specifically now for Ghanaian, Nigerian, Benin, Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, people who I know are friends of mine. Mm. The drive for education in the, Super. you're not going to school and say, oh, I'm only going to take five GC. Are you mad? Yeah. Come home to what? To get sent back where? <laughs> it's not a choice. All right, it's, it's not. It's, not a literally choice. Not it's an not. option. University is not a choice. And I mean, you, in option. your mind, okay, I'm not saying university is for everybody, but there's something about embedded in the culture that do not bring shame on my family because you need to go and get it. Even if it's just me showing off to auntie and uncle and wife, you need to get that education. Mm. And for me, historically, what happened with Caribbeans, a lot of Caribbeans, and Akala was talking about this in, 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 in his podcast, that I, I would say that my parents, they, they came from a, a relatively middle-class, upwardly mobile mm. um, space, and then they got knocked back when they were here. And that generation, we were just like, oh, no, no, you better be able to get it. A generation or two skipped later, there isn't that emphasis on it. There is yeah. more, let's get into entertainment, let's get into sports, and that will be the way. And I'm like, do that. But if you want to get into entertainment and sports, go and have a look at the guys who you're following. Go and have a look at Stormzy and see how many GCSEs he got yeah. at top grade. Yeah. Go and have a look at Dummy and Tiny Temper yeah. and go and have a look at the way they built their business together yeah. so that they elevated it to the next level. So if you're going to do that, schooling is not just education, but go and have a look at those models and see how that actually works. And I believe that there is something about that, that, that um, the, blazing, uh, the, the trail being blazed within the West African community first Mm. Um, because I think there is a, there is a, it's, it's almost, and correct me if I'm wrong here, please tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I think it's almost, in, it's almost weaved into the DNA as a, especially with first generation, it's weaved into that DNA that it's a necessity. Whereas I think in, in some respects, the black British stroke, black Caribbean, unless, unless you're that first generation, freshly Caribbean, to, like you're just coming yeah. over here. I think ones who have been here before, the emphasis is not as much. So to expand on that, because, um. I gathered that you're, you're a child of the Windrush generation. Yeah. Um, and one of my previous guests, uh, Janet Thomas, she's she's also a child of the Windrush generation. Something I'd taken for granted was that there was very much a brain drain from the Caribbean. It was, it was the, uh, and again, Carla was talking about this as well. Yeah. It was kind of the upwardly mobile people, those who were highly educated from the Caribbean, who actually came here in the first place, yeah. felt knocked down and then, um, yeah, things haven't progressed the way we, we would have hoped so. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting in, in you saying that you feel like the um, Africans, the first generation Africans are very big on education, unlike the Caribbeans. Um, do you, I guess if you were to look in a crystal ball, do you, do you think that in, in a generation or two's time that 
that would that we'd be seeing what what we're seeing in the Caribbean community, the same thing in the African community if things are left unchecked or it's possible. Yeah. But Again, and, and I'm really speaking in broad brush terms yeah, here. Yeah, of course, yeah. I know, uh, I think of, so many, many years ago, I, I did a lot of work in Oxbridge. So mm-hmm. working with black students who went to Cambridge and Oxford. Mm-hmm. Caribbean and um, West African. And how it started was originally there were a lot of Caribbeans who would go to, uh, to, to Oxbridge and they would suffer some mad depression and isolation because they were the only ones that were there. Um, so myself and a couple of guys said, look, you know, let's just go and mentor some people and what have you. And I mentored and I, I remember one of my one of my mentors who's actually turned out to be one of my closest friends, Lola. Um, the expectation that she she's just said to me, she goes, Dave, Cambridge was expected. Mm-hmm. It was expected for me to go to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. A couple of the others who I'd done, they had somebody had realized, man, this child is really bright. I think mm-hmm. they should go to Cambridge. Her, and she was Nigerian, her father and father were, you know, chieftain, it was out of that lineage. It was expected to go to Cambridge. It was a standard, (laughs) okay? And and again, you know, I remember (laughs) I I went and I was talking in, um, I think it was Nottingham, I think I was talking in Nottingham University and I went and I was a part of a, I was talking to a couple of ACS groups. And um, so somebody said to me, oh, did you go to university? I said, look, I went for a year. I went because my parents wanted to, but I was never going to go. And they go, where did you go? And I said, I went to, um, what's it called now? London Metropolitan. Mm. And she just burst out laughing. And I was like, what are you laughing for? What's wrong with you? Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? And she proper laughter. And, and I said, why are you laughing? It's, it's a union. And she goes, no, no, no. She goes, you know, because where I come from, we were expected to go to Russell Group. Yeah. And South Bank, yeah. no, London Metropolitan, East London, they were not seen on the radar. It just mm. wasn't seen on the radar. And I was like, that's deep. But then when I had the conversation, most people, because obviously they were in Nottingham, they were mm. like, no, nah, that's exactly the same that we had, mm. both Caribbean and, and African. And what I've realized is I think that there is a, a lot of emphasis goes on how much we don't achieve. Mm. And that's driven not within the community, but externally. Yep. So for example, Hence you know, podcast, look, yep. as, much as, as much as we will, um, uh, you know, kind of like scratch our heads around cr- knife crime and, and what have you in, in London, it's a it's a UK thing, yeah. But if the media get onto it like it's just a black boy thing, it's gonna get spilled out, and then we begin to believe it. Oh my god, I don't want to walk down the road if I see a black boy. If I see a black guy's walking down the road, right, I'm more scared of white guys. Let me just keep that real because I don't know what they've been smoking or whatever, right. So I'm gonna go, yeah, how you doing? I'm gonna chat to black guys anyway. But there's so many in the community who are frightened of that kind of mm. narrative. Well, let me make it clear: I ain't walking through Stonebridge. Right? Just keep, that, keep yeah. that real. I'm still <laughs> going around. Right, I would drive, but. And more of a chance for me to have that conversation. And mm. I feel that within our community, we should be directing that narrative. Mm. We should, not everybody's going to go to university. Mm-hmm. Let's make that clear. And I don't think that they should. And they shouldn't. Yeah. But wherever you go, bloody well do your best and be educated in the skills and the talent that you do and raise yourself up. Not for anyone else, not to prove yourself to white people or mm. any other, or, or Asian or Jewish or any other uh, ethnic group. But to prove to yourself that you're capable of doing it and no one should put you down. But doesn't that come back, come full circle to the fact that you grew up in an environment, or, and I, I say that for myself, where I was taught that. My dad said, I don't care what you do. You can, like, thread eyebrows for a living, just be the best, just aim yeah. for the yes. best. Yeah. But at the same time, I also took that as, okay, I'll do, be the best in all the other things, but my education, I need to be the yeah. best mm. as well. So we grew up in an environment where we were, that idea was reinforced within us. Yeah. What about the people that, don't have that kind of mm. capital. Yeah. 
Well, I think part of it, again, is the influence, and that's why I was talking about the schools. So there are organisations that already exist. So there's Generating Genius, there's West, mm -hmm. the West London, Westside um, Academy, there are Black Girls Code, there are Black Girls in STEM. There are many organisations that are kind of like dotted around, but there isn't that connection central, where yeah. you can actually find it. I, I'll, just, I'll just throw this out here, because I don't care if anybody teaches you. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> All right, so as I said, I've started this incubator, and one of the ideas I have, and I don't care if anybody runs with it, because it's, it's, again, run with, it's, it. it's someone, run with it, I don't mind. Someone do it. But it's called Black Ivy, and basically what Black Ivy is, is that in, in the US, there is a, a group of the top black colleges, and they're called Black Ivy. Oh, the Ivy League. The Ivy League, yes. it's called Black Ivy. So I thought, okay, how can we replicate this in England? And I create this platform called Black Ivy, I'm still working on it. As I said, I don't care if anybody takes it and runs with it. But the idea is that all these schools, because so there are still supplementary schools that exist, all these um, organisations that encourage people to go into Oxford, the ACSs that are out there, all these, you know, the mentoring programmes, there is no central place that someone can go to and go, how can I actually help my kid if they don't have access to it? Mm. And we've got, you know, once upon a time we used to have the, the newspapers and whatever, they're not as, you know, influential yeah. anymore. I'm like, drop that stuff on Snapchat, on Insta or yeah. what have you, create those platforms so that, you know, where a lot of these, these kids are going, tell churches, tell mosques, tell communities even before they get here, that these are the spaces and opportunities that we have. Because not everybody has a family, but there's no excuse within this technology to say that you don't ha know how to get access to it. Yeah. So it's great when we're brought up in those environments. And I understand it. Look, if you're brought up in a middle-class environment, we, our chances of success are far higher than somebody who's brought, sorry, who's brought up in an area where there's a bit of destitution and they don't have that kind of, those role models around them. Um, but I do think that with the access to technology and the way that information is disseminated across people, I think it's important to at least signpost it and amplify it wherever we can and provide some support, whether it's mentoring, whether it's online tutoring, whatever, I think we can provide it. Definitely, definitely. Um, so um, you said like, well, yeah, you said you went to London Met yep. initially and you studied law. Um, so for a year. For a year. Yeah. Um, one. I why? Really liked, I really liked reading that about you. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why London Met? Was it? Was it intentional to stay in London? It's why convenient. Law? Convenient. It was. It was actually. My parents never encouraged me to leave the city. Like me, yeah. I've got two daughters now. I'm like, get out, oh, go, yeah. go and experience the world. Go travel. Go and study in another city. Go and understand how it is to navigate the world without your safety net. So my daughter's currently at Bournemouth. My eldest daughter's like at Bournemouth. She's the only black girl in her course. I couldn't do it. All right? Only black girl <laughs> on her course. Okay? Actually, she, she's not actually in... The, even, I can't tell you the actual campus because I don't want people going to talk yeah, my daughter, right? Yeah. But she's on another campus, but part of the Bournemouth University. Yeah. She's the only black girl on her course. And she's felt that. There have been some things that have happened where there have been microaggressions. There have been... Yeah. And I'm like, babe, let me tell you something now. I want you to understand that now... Because when you get into the world and you start working in TV and production and film, you're going to see racism yeah, like you never even understood before. Yeah. I'm glad you're understanding that and navigating. I said to my youngest daughter, when you go to do your degree, if you want to go and do a degree, go out of London. I will support you, provide you money, all that kind of stuff. But go out because the, the, the one thing about London, and I will say this now, if you're part of an ethnic community in London or you know a black community in London, there's a, a specific safety net that you can operate in. It's, but it's, if you get work and you have to leave town... yeah. Like, I've gone and travelled as a speaker and a trainer <laughs> and I've left town. If I hadn't had that travelling experience before, I would, I would be mashed up. People just looking at you like, because you're it's, the only black guy in the town. It's quite interesting that you say this because like, I, I, per, I, just to share my story, yeah. I went to a grammar school in, in North London and there were about maybe about five to ten black people in each year. Um, well, really in 
pretty much from the year above me, that's when you started having batches of five and tens. Other than that, there was like one or two people. Um, and I really disliked that experience. I really hated it. So my my whole motive was to go to uni in London it, because of that safety net. Like what you're talking about, going to Bournemouth, that's, that was not a thing for me. Because for me, my fear was going off to one of these places. I don't like it and I don't have my safety net. I can't just catch the bus or or catch the tube down to and go see my friends or whatever. I'm stuck. Um, so it's quite interesting that I guess you're almost encouraging that from a, from a young age. And I certainly see the benefits in it. I just don't know whether I have the... It's, um, it's being able to navigate. It. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here going out and I can tell you over 90% of the speeches that I give to businesses and audiences around the world are to a predominantly non-black crowd. Mm. I'd have to learn how to navigate that space. Mm. When I go to Australia and I go and I go and speak in there, there isn't people who look like me in there. Mm. When I go to Southeast Asia and I look, there aren't people out there. When I go to Europe, okay, hardly anybody who looks like me. Mm. Learning how to, and then, and then you've obviously got those conversations that come, oh, you know, you can tell when people, they want to ask questions like, yeah. oh, you know, where are you from? I'm London. No, where are you really from? I'm like, Northwest London. <laughs> okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, and having to educate people you do that because you've had the experience. So I, to mm. be fair, I dropped out of college because out of uni because I just wanted to run my own business and do my own thing. It took me around the country. I went to places. I used to do raves. Right? I used to take Hull, Manchester, Sheffield, all right, Liverpool. What do you mean do raves? Were you, were you like a DJ, DJ promoter? promoter. Okay. Yeah. Swear That's where you get money. That's what? what I'm doing. I argue. Well, so I'm not yeah. arguing people. Yeah. People in London are like, what do you mean five pound, man? Bring me in for four pound. I'm like, nah. <laughs> I got in the sticks, 10 pound, they're good, they're paying, done. And they spend a whole heap of money on drink, okay? End of story, you made money. So I traveled around, okay? Mm. And there were certain times that you had to, you know, certain times I went to Newcastle. I don't know what them guys are saying to me. All I hear is, I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. Made my money. It was able to be, able to, be nav- to navigate those spaces, I think makes you even more um, aware of how you perceive yourself as well as how people perceive you. Mm. And for me, sometimes being in a, a bubble, sometimes we can be in a bubble, um, and it's great to have family around, it's great to have that net, but sometimes I think you just need to have those spaces where you get taken out of your comfort zone, even mm. if it means you come back into London afterwards and live mm. there and go, right, I've had enough of that and I'm done. Learning how to navigate in those spaces, I think, is better. And now, especially now, things like Brexit, if, mm. if more than ever, I think black people should think globally. Act locally, 100%, but think globally. 100%, 100%, 100%. But that's, that's mine. Just out of interest, what, 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 what music was it we promote? Like, what type of It was house. Promoting? It was like proper house. Okay. It was like house, um, early, like electro and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I used to do the little R&B gigs and stuff like that, yeah, but then yeah. I have to spend so much money on security. I was like, nah, I'm not dealing with that. Okay. All right. So I used to do a little, I'd do a little bash, bashment one, and I was like, nah, I'm not dealing because people are too angry. All right. <laughs> I used to do a little bit of R&B. It was quite cool. And I went out of town. I did house. Then people, okay, I'm so really bad. So was it just promoting? Most of my, it was, yeah, so we put on a night. But as in like, did you DJ at all? No, nope, I hired DJs. together DJs. Hired a DJ, got a on. club, went in there, hired a place up, just go for it. Boom. So that's been your MO from? Yeah, why, When did why you start not? that? When did you start like doing Like in my late teens. Wow. So going into uni, you started doing that? Yeah. Or did you start at uni? Before, I started before I went into uni. Okay. I used to run a club. I used to run SW1 in Victoria. Did a couple of nights down at Ministry, no Mini, Ministry of Sound. <laughs> All right. This interview just we'll took do... a whole different direction. <laughs> we love it still. Okay, yeah, we'll do home. Yeah. Um, we'll do legends in the back of Leicester Square. Um, Bar Rumba, we, before they used oh. to do the Friday nights. Yeah, 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 yeah. before they used to do that, used to have the strawberry clubs. 
all those, all those, all right. those circus people used to do um, uh, Hanover Square. Hanover used to have a yeah. big Hanover Square. Um, used to do all those clubs. And the fact is, is that you go and you do a really good night. And there were other guys. Well, I remember there were guys, I can't remember what they were called. They used to do Iceni Club in the back of Green Park. Okay. Three floors. Hip-hop, R&B, and house, I think it was. Awesome. Mad on a Wednesday night. Mad, 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 mad. Wait, All I did is like, yeah, on a Wednesday night. <laughs> it was cock. I mean, and people would come up. And the fact is, it was so good. Uh, uh, and people would turn up to those stuff. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the weather is. You just come, come in and you, you do it. Yeah. And what you realize was is people love the fact that they wanted to just rave they wanted to get out get some really good DJs have a really good night out and they would pay top whack we used to do them in the fields we used yeah. to go on well, first time we used to go and put, put up canvases in the fields people used to pay £20 a night just to turn up so, and that's not even with drinks so capitalism one on one alright <laughs> <laughs> so it was you know part, part of that was again you learn a lot about yourself how do you negotiate when I'm yeah. calling up a guy in the middle of a farm and what have you I'm going to put on my Dave McQueen English voice and what have you. Yeah. When I rock up at his house, he'd be like, oh, yeah. well, I've got a couple of white brothers behind me. And when I show him two grand in his hand, he ain't complaining. Yeah. It's how you do it. It's really how you do it. Know the game. Yeah, definitely. Know the game. That's right. So, so how did you, so obviously I understand you left, you left uni then, you were promoting, and then you went into accounting yes. and tech. So yeah. how did that, like, what was, what was navigating all that about? Like, how did you end up then? So the challenge with the, challenge with the raving was that I was still going to church. Okay. And so you were conflicted. Yes, I hear that. And I um, and that. I loved it and what have you, but it was it was becoming problematic. And and around the time as well, I had started up. My me and my best mate were starting up. We started up a teens ministry. And so a I kind of teens, teens ministry. So basically, yeah. we cater for fourteen to nineteen year olds. Basically, what they would do between the ages of fifteen to eighteen in churches. That's when you find a lot of younger people tend to go away and leave church. Mm. Um, so we thought, how can we cater for that group and make it a lot more viable so that even if they did leave church, they kind of like got a spiritual ground and all the rest and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So um, after a little while, I was making a lot of money and then I realized I need to really learn how to manage this money stuff and I went and got a job as an accountant because I wanted to know how to manage my money. Because um, I was like, <laughs> I ain't going to jail because my, my dad would beat like me on the way, way around, to jail right, and yeah. then back out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I wanted to learn how that business stuff, I didn't want to be an accountant, mm. but I wanted to have jobs and stuff to learn. So I learned management accounts, I learned financial accounts, I could do accounts all the way up to, um, to final reporting to shareholders. I can mm. do that easily to mm. this day. And having that backing gave me, it gave me the credibility to be able to walk into a room and talk about the financial side of a business without being second guessed. And no, I didn't do any accounting exams, but just because I didn't do the exams didn't necessarily mean I knew to navigate my way around yeah. margins and tax and costing and all that kind of stuff. That was important for me. Um, and so then when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I've, I've done what I've got to do and I'm not going to do this anymore. I, um, I was working for a company, actually. Um, I don't know. I was like, I'm really bored here, man. I never stayed in a company for more than two and a half years. I just couldn't. I just, I'm plus, I don't like people telling me what to do. I'm like, just, I just like, who are you? And why are you telling me what to do? That's you, right. your mum and your granddad, get out of here, right? That's my whole... You can't, I can't. Um, and, uh, and then I love, but I love systems and processes, so I ended up in IT. I originally used to do, I used to be the king of Excel. Telling you now, right, no one could touch me. My formulas me, and my list. I used to be the king, king, king of Excel. People, yeah. all the seniors used to come and say, come and drop it, do this for me. I used to mash it up. And then I went into like, I found out that I could actually do it even better if I started to go to the back end of the databases and work mm-hmm. with the databases and doing a lot of reporting and cut down a lot of time. So I ended up spending a lot of time doing there. And one day I said to my boss, look, rather than go, why don't I just go over to the IT department and do some work there? Got so you. I did a lot of work around systems and reporting. And then I left that company, set up my own thing, 
went a, re- a bit awry around 9-11 and all the whole IT market imploded. I still came back and did a lot of project management. Actually, claim to fame, I, I, I was the project manager for the student finance system in the University of Westminster. Oh, so I don't. Full circle, right? That's okay. a good um, <laughs> Proper full circle. That's yeah. right. But what I realized with both of them, it was um, I love systems, mm. I love business, but I also love communicating. Mm-hmm. And so when I decided, right, I can't be working for anybody anymore, what could I do really well? And I went into do the communicating and training. And, uh, and a lot of it meant that I was working with corporates. A lot of it meant that I was working with lawyers and accountants and engineers who were really good at what they do, but really crap at presenting. Yeah. Or really, or really bad. Like, you know, people will come with really bad PowerPoints. I'm sure you've seen this email. Really bad PowerPoints. And they would not make the story come alive. And I'm like, well, I've been there because I know what it's like to present financial and technical but here's how you do it where you bring a bit of your personality and here's how you do it slightly differently. So all the way through, my, my career has always been, how do I communicate these concepts better to people? Mm-hmm. But if I get to a point where I've, I've learned enough, I'm going to move. If I found that, I love presenting, I've been doing this since I was a kid, but if I found that it was boring, I'm going to go and do something else. Mm. Interesting. And that's the journey. So I'm always like, what does my, what does my heart tell me to do? It takes a lot of confidence and knowing, yeah, knowing yourself and knowing, like, okay, this is, this is fitting for a while, but okay, now there's a bit of resistance here, so let me yeah. move on. And that, that, that takes a lot of courage as well. It does. And there have been, trust me, there have been mistakes along the way <laughs> and there have been some crash and burns, but I'm like, I'm still alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Um, you know, if uh, I'm of the opinion, and, and this, this might sound really arrogant and I hope it doesn't, but if you've ever been in a job or in a business where you've made anywhere up to six figures, no matter what life throws at you, if you've done it once, you, you can, can do, do it, it again. again. 100%. <laughs> if you've sure. done it, 100%. you can do it again. And, 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 and bear in mind, and, and I, will, I will never belittle the fact that there may be um, serious issues around mental health and depression and anxiety that people have. Mm. Barring those, if you've done it once, you can do it again. Mm. You can do it again. It takes the same... This sounds really this sounds really bad, but it takes the same amount of energy for somebody to be a millionaire as it does for somebody to just have a job. Mm. All it is, again, as you said, it's that confidence and bravery and going, right, I'm gonna go and do it. But mm. it takes the same amount, it's the same hours in the day they've got. Yeah. All it is is just that mindset of, you know, um, who do I need around me and uh, um, and how badly do I need it? Like I've never I'll I'll honestly be say I will honestly say to you, up until about two years ago. I was never, ever interested in being a millionaire. It just wasn't, it just wasn't on my radar. I'm like, yeah. why do I need to be a millionaire? I've got my wife, I've got my daughters, we can pay for holidays, we can go. And you know, look, I, don't, I don't even care about cars. I got here today by train, yeah. all right? I don't care about cars, all right? But then, about a couple of years ago, I was like, I, was about to say, I, what, can, <laughs> I can make a meal <laughs> if I want to. Do you know what I mean? I can make a meal. And, and, and I looked at it and I thought, but I'm, the way I look at it is I'm looking at, I can make a meal so that I can help people and demonstrate to them how I could do that. So this is why my new business now is mm. I want to make millionaires from this business. Mm. I want to churn out millionaires like you never believe. And it's also okay just to make a meal because you can. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> but there was out there. But a lot we of were it, talking about this last week or whenever it was. A yeah. lot of it, if I be honest with you, when I when I got to when I really got under the surface of it, a lot of it was because of conversations that I had with people about the love of money is the root of all evil. Why do you mm. need to store up all the money? Blah blah blah. A lot of and it was a, a misinterpretation, yeah. but yeah. it still stays in the back of your mind and it takes a lot of unlearning no matter how much you free, think you free have to free. Mentally, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I'm like now now I'm heading for my million man I'm going for it <laughs> but sorry just to, to take a step back though, yes because um, yeah you said you were doing accounting you were doing mm-hmm. IT and then you decided to go off and do um, 
training. Training for, yeah. I guess me as someone who's got a number of businesses, um, I know Salome can relate to this as well. Like working full time, you have that comfort of 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 a of a regular income. You know your money's coming in. Yes. And all of that. Why, or rather, like when. What was it like taking that step where it's now you're out in the big and you need to chase clients, you need to do business development, you need to retain clients. I mean, one of, one of the things I'm doing is one of my several things mm-hmm. is um, I work with a bunch of athletes and we go, they go into schools and train and stuff like that. Yeah. And the business development aspect of it is driving me nuts. Like yeah. I, can manage the, I can manage it once we've got a relationship, mm-hmm. but just trying to get in the door in the first place. And it's like, how... how what was the experience like of leaving what you're doing, what's comfortable, yeah. and kind of stepping out into the wide world? And Okay. So let me give you the biggest thing that I've learned around business. Yeah. Okay? You don't have to do everything. Yeah. And it's really good to hire somebody yep. who can do what you don't want to do. Yep. So what that means for me is I've got to be able to create the business in such a way that someone else can go and do that work for me. So a lot of my work is referral as a speaker and coach. A lot of it is referral. Mm-hmm. Some people will see me on a stage or I would have coached them or I would have trained them or I've done some facilitation and they'll go, we heard from somebody that you can do X, Y, and Z and I'll go in and I'll go and do it. Mm-hmm. But I still have got to be, like, if, you, if you see me on LinkedIn, I'm constantly churning yeah, out content. Because yeah. I don't want people to forget me. So yeah, I'm constant yeah. and I'm pushing it, I'm poking the beer. People yeah. are like, right, Dave, you really went there with the race and the leadership <laughs> and the that and all this. And I'm like, yeah, because people are afraid to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then people, I'd like you to come into my office and come and do some speaking. But just as long as you don't talk about the race, I'm like, no, nah, that comes with the package. If you don't like it, can't deal with it. And, and what I've realized is that initially when you start it, yes, you're going to be the one doing the hustle. Yeah. But then the idea is that you build it to a space where you can hire somebody to be able to go and do it. So, for example, business development, it might be that you go and get somebody who has expertise in education, who has those contacts, who has that database, who can go and they can contact those schools or those organizations, and they can make the difference for you rather than you having to think it. You don't like it. You make mm. it in your voice. I can hear you don't like it. You'll I do it because it. it's a necessity. I hate it. But there are people out there who love, love it. it. Yeah. And what it is, and the, 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 the beautiful thing about, and this is why I love networking, the beautiful thing about networking and, and leveraging your Twitter, your, your Insta, your LinkedIn, or what have you, is finding people who have had results there or who really are passionate about that stuff who can come in and do it. Make or break, you don't know. If you haven't got the chemistry, it might not work. Mm. But finding people to go and do that for you is important. And the reason why I say that, and the reason why that's important for me, is because although I manage different pro, pro, um uh, projects and programs because I'm an advisor on businesses as well is that my main focus is I ha- this is it center to all that I do is how can I get leaders to communicate better mm. that's it mm. so when you see me speaking coaching all the rest when you see me setting up that incubator when you see me sitting on the board of advisory boards when you see me mentoring people at the court at the, the chief thing for me which really drives me is how can I get leaders to communicate better mm. If I help you speak, if I help you with your board, if I help you raise, do your sales, if I help you do strategy for your business, that is what my main focus is. And so because that's my main focus, I'm not, I'm not the best at marketing. I hire mm. in somebody. I can market, but I hire in a marketer. Mm. I, I got my own PA. I pay, I pay my PA a couple of hundred pounds a month. I, I've never met my PA. Yeah. In my life. Virtual, yeah. All right, she booked my whole diary, okay? <laughs> she made sure all, all that stuff, you know, all that, all that stuff is managed. But what it is, is being able to focus on that. And, and, and the one thing I will say as well, if I can take it back a step, 
especially when you take that leap to start a new business or to start a new project, work your ass off and get that one thing right first, mm. build that reputation, and once you've done it to the point where it's a system essentially where you don't necessarily need to be there, that's when I say you go out and start looking at other stuff. Mm. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people juggle a lot of stuff, which that's is cool, me. but make sure you get that. What's that one thing that you do really well and you're really, really focused on it that if you walked away and took a step back, it could actually run itself mm-hmm. and then go and run the others. Otherwise, than that, you will, I will say this now, you'll get overwhelmed, you'll get stressed, you'll get anxiety, you'll get burnout. That's my, mm-hmm. my take on it anyway. I think it's good to juggle, but yeah. Going back to like your core, you seem like like you have a defined purpose and how did you kind of discover that or get to the point where you were like, okay, my core is to ensure that leaders communicate better or improve how yeah. they communicate. How did you get to Trial that? and error. Mm-hmm. Trial and error. So when I originally started the presentation, I really wanted to help people to do really well in their career. So I used to pitch myself as a career coach and go and do the stuff and I go in schools and I, you know, it was all around career, career. And then I realized it was a bit deeper because the demand that people would come to me was specifically from leaders. And then I sat down and I was like, okay, what do people really want from me? And I went and I looked at the responses people gave and the feedback and the testimonials and the, all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, okay, so that's where I'm really making the difference. And I moved away from it. I was like, nah, that's too narrow. And then when I went back and I, I, my brand literally, if you go onto my site, it literally says helping leaders communicate and grow because mm-hmm. I just wanted it to be explicit. Um, and it came by trial and error. And like even now, as I said, I've set up this new business. Again, I want to help the leaders communicate and grow and make some good money that can be generated back to the, that can be the wealth can be generated back to their the next kin, the next generation, and the next generation after that. Mm. So it does take trial and error. Mm. And there are times where, as a coach and as a mentor, sometimes I sit down with people and I go, "What do you really like to do?" Some of my people I mentor they don't like me because then they drop like three projects that they've been really passionate about. They go, "Oh my god, I really like this." I go, "No, focus on this one or two first. That will really, really define to you what you really like doing and what makes gives you joy, and then you can go and touch the other stuff. See this book here I was talking to you about? Yeah. If you see the amount of business ideas I've got in here, that my wife said to me that I can't do them unless I can prove to her how I can make two hundred and fifty thousand pounds from it straight away. Wow, <laughs> sounds like a quarter of a million pounds. Yes. If I can't make a quarter of a million pounds from it, I can't touch it. So I look at someone, I'm like, I like it, and I'm like, I want to write that down. Yeah, I might, I might need that to be. Uh, uh, if I can't make quarter of a million pounds, yeah. and you and you realize it's because because you're because it's the energy you put into some yeah. stuff. And there is, you know, sometimes I I will go on LinkedIn and I'll see somebody and they've got like seven things they're doing, and I'm like, that's me. And I, but I'm like, much. where do you get spreading yourself too thin? It's too yeah. much. Too it's too projects. much. I'm tired. Like. Where do you, that's well, this is it. And you're like, ah. So even when I go, like, you know, I've got my podcast, I do a podcast with my wife, I feature on other people's podcasts. I love that because it's still part of my modus operandi. I can mm. still say, this is part of my whole thing of what I do. So if I slot it in, it's not away from my focus. Mm. But like I saw a really good idea that I saw the other day. I really wanted to do a lot of black conscious. I don't think there are enough. Um, uh, there are brands, but I don't think there are enough brands that do stuff around historical quotes from across the continent, Caribbean mm-hmm. and Africa, and, and even, they tend to be more North American more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the stuff? And I was like, oh, I can go and do it. I can make hoodies. I can make the T-shirts. I can make the bandana. And then I was like, how am I going to make a quarter of a million on that? Yeah. How does that align with my helping leadership to communicate and grow? And it didn't, so I had to junk it. Man. Junk it. So for you, it's did very not align. much about having one, 
this almost a pillar that, that yes. everything has to yeah. revolve or rotate around. Because that's what gives me energy. Yeah. I know what gives me energy. When I go in and I go and do my stuff, what is it? When I, if somebody says to me, Dave, go and do a speech around that, and I go, whoa, yeah, I get up out of my bed. Somebody goes, go and coach or go and advise somebody. I'm like, yeah. If somebody says, Dave, go and sit down and help this person with the marketing plan, I'm like, yeah. yeah that's not, yeah, exactly, that's not my thing. Yeah. And so knowing that thing that gives you the energy, Mm. And and I go to bed, and when I go to bed and I'm tired, I'm gone. Because usually most nights, ten thirty, I'm in my bed, I'm out. I don't care. Mm. All right, I'm gone. I don't do raves anymore. Someone so I don't need say to. Someone at you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to. That's back in the day. That's been back in the day before I had children. Do you know what I mean? When you got children, that changes the whole game. Listen, I'm no, seriously. There are sometimes, right? Like if I if somebody invites me out for an event now, and I know it's going to be a late one, I have to sleep in the day. I have Take to nap. get get. I have to get the nap because yeah. I'll be sitting down at eleven o'clock. I'll be like, All right, Uber, I'm out. I'm gone. See you later. But it is it's because it's a rhythm and it's a routine. I I get Are into you rise seven o'clock okay. usually, but maybe about six. So I like to be able to. I like to have at least seven to nine hours sleep a night. Mm. If I can get nine hours right, like especially on a weekend, sometimes I get vexed. Like on a Saturday morning, it's seven o'clock. I'm up. I'm like, nah. <laughs> I so I go to bed at ten thirty on a Friday night. Mm. Out cold. It's needed, it's needed. Um, so... I still go to Rosa, if I have to. Okay. <laughs> I get from... I, I, just from reading your profile and finding yes. out about you. Um, so you're doing this life coaching stuff, or you're doing training and so yeah. on and so forth. How did that evolve to TV? So you did the vocation, vocation, yes. vocation. Um, and I think you did some stuff for Virgin yeah. as well. Um, ironically, our cameraman works for, for Virgin, so okay, I'm okay. sure you lot can catch up about that yes, later. Yes, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, how, how how did how did it progress to there, and then why didn't you continue with, at, at least to the best of my yeah. knowledge, you didn't continue. So the, the TV, <laughs> I remember from quite oh, young. Oh, sorry, and one other okay, question. Okay, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. In line with TV is yeah. also, also what was it like now having a kind of public profile? So I'm sure before, you were sort of just doing it. Yes. Those who knew you knew you, <laughs> but now now you're in front of a yes a national audience. So yeah, sorry, go on. Okay. What's it like being famous? No, do yeah. you know what? Can I, this, is, this is my first point I was going to make. I actually hate fame. Yeah. I don't mind being known. That's why I'm not in the camera, by the way. No, do you I know what? Like, no, oh, just put everyone at co-host. No, just I, you in. I don't, if you I don't don't want to be in front, that's, that's No, there's a difference. There's a difference. <laughs> there's, a very, there's a difference. I don't... Okay, let's take a... Let me give you a comparison. I don't... Sometimes I'll travel on public transport and people will look and they will recognise me because mm. the, they've obviously seen me on a podcast, seen me on television, seen me do some stuff on YouTube or what have you. Or they might have seen me at a conference and they'll go, oh, is your name Dave McQueen? I go, yeah, kind of thing, you know. Or sometimes somebody will look really weird looking and they go, oh, you Dave McQueen? I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. I go, everybody asks me that question and then I kind of avoid it. Right? It's really bad. That's but a I'm good just, response. I'm going to keep it real. You don't say yes or no. Like, everyone but, asks that. But, exactly. <laughs> but I don't like fame. Yeah. And the, the reason why I don't like fame is because people, for me, think that they have access to you. Mm. because you're there like I think about Stormzy Stormzy can't walk down the road at all Stormzy went to Melbourne in Australia mm. and they had to shut down the shopping centre because right. people were coming in and it was Melbourne on the other side of the world but one of my best mates he's a tour manager so he works okay, with yeah. him um, so I don't like fame because I don't like how intrusive it is mm. but I do like having a platform where you can speak about certain things and you control that mm. do you understand what I mean so, um, so I, I, I said from quite young I wanted to be on television. I actually wanted to be on Blue Peter, but I couldn't swim. <laughs> so, in order to be on Blue Peter, you had to swim. I didn't know how to swim until I was 30, right? But I couldn't swim. So I was like, okay, whatever. But I always had this idea. I'd really love to be on television. It'd be really good, but I don't want to do no stupid shows. I want to do something that's educational. I've always wanted to do something that was educational. 
So I said to a couple of my friends, and I said, before my 40th birthday, I was 38, I remember this. I wrote down a couple of my friends, it was my, um, it was before the New Year's, and I said, do you know what? Before my 40th birthday, I want to be on TV. I want to do something that will be really educational, really empowering. Like, I've got to do it before I'm 40. That's my goal. I sent it out to a couple of my friends. Because, um, you know, you put your goal out in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and, you know, for it to come back. And a few weeks later, a friend of mine told me that there was an audition going out. Um, he saw this post for an audition going at Channel 4. Mm. I was like, you know what? I wanted to do this thing. Mm. This is, this is yeah. the universe telling me that something must happen. So I went and I applied to this thing. I rock up to this thing. And, and obviously, I didn't have my beard and stuff like that. And you, and, and then, you know, black don't crack so you can get away with certain things. Yeah. When you're, yeah. And I walked into this room. And I'm like, I'm 38, but most of these people are like in their early 20s. I'm like, I'm okay. old enough to be all your dads, all right? <laughs> and I thought, but you know what? I wanted to do this. Mm. Let me do it. And got down to the, I remember got down to the, um, the final four. And it was me, this white guy, an Asian woman, and a white woman. And I'm looking at this white guy thinking, man, he looks like Dermot. You know, the, the um, big yeah, the brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, damn, I'm like, rah, I know they're going to want him on telly. But I'm like, no, nah, you ain't getting in front of me. I'm going to show, I'm going to razzle my dazzle. <laughs> and I went and I was interacting <laughs> with these young people and it was, they, we were having banter and what have you. And the producers were like, ah, went back to Channel 4. Channel 4 didn't want me. They wanted the oh, guy. Yeah. The producers were like, nope, this is the guy who's really going to work it. He knows exactly. He's in tune with those young people and they mm. fought and I got the job. Okay. So I did this 10-part series around the country. It's yours. Yes, if it's yours, that's right. You've got to go for it, man. You've got to go for it. I did it. It was really good. Um, and then what it did is it put me on a platform like that, the early days of MySpace and Facebook where people would see me. And somebody said, David, use it as part of your personal brand. It's going to get you work. So you know you're talking about getting into schools. Mm-hmm. Getting into schools, I was like, I was a Channel 4 oh, yeah. presenter. Vocation, vocation, vocation. Yeah, vocation, exactly, vocation yeah. like, people like, guess, oh my God, we've got a TV presenter. <laughs> Kids are like, who's he? I've never seen him before. <laughs> it don't matter. I'm here now. And by the time I'm finished, you're going to know you're going to remember me, okay? And I did that. And then a little while later, a friend of mine, she works at Virgin Media. And she said, we're doing this program around entrepreneurship. We know that you love this stuff. Can you come in and do some presenting for it? So I went... I um, interviewed entrepreneurs. Then one day I said, you know, it would be really great if I interviewed Richard Branson because it's his company after all. It would be really good. And she goes, funny you should say that. We're actually going to his house in a few weeks for this event and we'd like you to interview him. I'm like, hell hell yeah. So I rock up, meet Richard Branson. We got on really, really well. We were having, he actually didn't want to talk to a journalist. He was like, keep speaking to me, keep staying here. (laughs) And his kind of like manager was like, Richard, the next one's in 10 minutes. And we were there for like half an hour longer than we should have. And then off the back of that, I ended up doing some more work with them. He had this, he had this yearly competition called Pitch to Rich or Voom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up being the pitch coach. Okay. I was originally the host for it as well. Mm-hmm. And then as you see it escalate, they brought in a lot more of the TV presenter. Mm-hmm. People are like, why aren't you doing it? I'm like, you know what? I did my bit. Let me stay to the yeah. back because I don't want that thing. I yeah. don't want it. Uh, off the back of all that stuff as well, I got invited to go on Big Brother. And I'm like, no, I, my mother did not raise me up that way. Okay? I don't <laughs> For who and for what? I no, I don't do reality TV for nobody. I am not. No way. I know what goes on behind the scene. And I know the psychology behind those programs as well. Um, and I don't think it's healthy. And um, so I did that. And then I just started doing my own stuff on YouTube. And I was just like, to be fair, you can probably reach the same audience on YouTube or Vimeo as you can mm. do on a normal television. And still not be affected in the way of fame as you would like on yeah. I mean obviously if you are a big massive YouTube star yeah. there's a whole machine that goes behind that yeah. and I used to mentor um, Jamal Edwards yeah, for yeah, SBTV for and I remember there was we went on a book tour because um, he wrote his book and he asked me to come along with him and we went up and down the country 
went to Birmingham, went to London, what have you. Hey, hey, SPTV, Jamal, blah, blah. Mm. And everywhere we go, it was, much, he was literally yeah. mobbed. Mm. I was like, it's too much. I couldn't. It's not for me. Yeah. But I do believe that if you do get a platform, use it wisely. Mm. And, and I would encourage people, if they wanted to go into TV and stuff like that, I think you have more control if you do it yourself. Mm. So YouTube, Vimeo, any one of those platforms. But if you get the opportunity, it's what you want to do, go for it. Mm. And how have you used... So I, I gather from, from your line of work, yes. obviously you met Richard Branson and so on yes. and so forth. You meet a lot of influential people, important people, rich yep. people, so on and so forth. How important has it been for you to kind of leverage that network to do what you do or do you not really? So for a couple of years, I had a picture of me and Richard Branson in my profile. About two years, <coughs> I had it on my LinkedIn, my Twitter and what have you. And it got me work overseas. Yeah. Um, and it got me work here as well. Yeah. So for a lot of people, there is validation. People, and I mean, to be honest with you, I know there's some people who are like, hey, we like it, because they just wanted to get a link up with Richard Branson. Yeah. And then when they got there, I would tell them the truth. It's not yeah. like that. It's yeah. not that kind of party. <laughs> and I'm not giving out no, no details. <laughs> but what I did realize is that people are quite fickle. 100%. And by having a certain brands and uh, people around you, there is an assumption. So people think, because I did that thing with five years with Richard Branson, people think that me and Richard Branson are on speed dial and we call each other. Mm. I don't know his number. Mm. I even got his email. Mm. Um, I now have to get in touch with him. That's very different. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's nice to have. But, and there are, and I will say this now, there are celebrities and people who I know. There's quite a lot of people who I know. But the one thing I think that they've, and I've been told this a number of times, one thing that they've, they've known that I've res they've respected me for is that I don't treat them like celebrities. You're my mm -hmm. mate, I get to know you. From the moment you're trying to drop that little celebrity stuff on me, I'm like, bun yeah. you, I'm not even having a conversation with you because I know you when you you needed £2.30 to go get chicken from, from Morley's <laughs> or KFC, so don't try and front on me yeah. now. Um, but I do realise that there are a lot of... If you know certain people and you move in certain spaces, it can cut down a hell of a lot of the stuff that you would have to do normally. Mm. So there are spaces and people that I get introduced to or I can speak to who would be considered unreachable, mm. but because I have a certain kudos of individuals around in my network, it has made my work, my life, a hell of a lot easier to navigate yeah. because of that. Definitely. So for example, I'll give you a quick... I'm, not, I'm just going to put it out on, the, on this, but I'm... I'm Four years ago, I found out how to get a blue tick on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Because I was given the email of two people who could do that. I don't want a blue tick. Okay. I don't need a blue tick. I'm not on Twitter anymore anyway, so it doesn't make a difference, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want a blue tick on any one of those platforms. And the reason being is because I think it's a false economy. What you're done is you're told to have this blue tick because then it makes you look like an influential. Yeah. All it really does is allows you to be more of a product for that platform. I want a brown tick. Or a exactly. black tick, you know, you how deep you want to go, for my own space. I don't need a tick on someone else's platform to validate me. Mm. And there are people who will go and they will fight to be these influencers and the ticks and all the rest, which I think is really good, but you don't need anybody else to validate you if you know what you do is good anyway. Mm. There's a difference between a following and an audience. Yes. Yeah. And Could you explain? Um, I love this. So, I'm listening. So, and I've been writing and understanding this, because I love social media, I love Instagram particularly because I take photos and yeah. it's a great platform for me. But I've been looking and I think you can have a following, which is a number. You can have a million followers. 
your audience are your kind of like your core mm. market that they will buy whatever everything that you yeah. you sell they'll come to all your shows mm. they'll you know and that's that's who you mm. essentially need to vibe with well, yes. that's who you need to create for so forget about the numbers figure out who your audience yes. is and just keep creating for that and it, or who, does, who is it that wrote about tribes uh, Seth Godin Seth Godin yeah because mm. you mm. find your tribe mm. the tribe will keep you afloat for the rest of your life yeah. so long as you keep creating for them yes mm. and that's why I like platforms like Patreon okay so Patreon is a it's a platform where you can donate to uh, so say for example somebody's producing content and you just pay them so you like pay them £5, £10 a month and you're supporting their craft you're supporting <laughs> the stuff that they actually thank you for do. telling me about that Thanks. because um, did you not know <laughs> did you not know about it I've never heard of it but I so, definitely yeah, so need pa- it for what Patreon is so Patreon is a, it's effectively you can be an artist and and like I've seen artists who have gone right I'm going to go and do a film and I'm going to raise hundred thousand pound okay mm. and people have gone and so all I need uh, uh, is uh, maybe a thousand followers who are going to pay me a hundred pound each uh, and um, to help me go and get this and they've gone so if you think about it a thousand people giving a hundred pounds a hundred thousand yeah, pounds money, yeah. and then you know the pro- product the product comes out and you're part of that um, that yeah. part of that community part of that tribe when new things come out you get first dibs before somebody else gets oh, it alright so it's a bit it's a, in a way it's a bit like it's a bit like a, a kickstarter but a commitment mm. it's a commitment and for me I'm all about tribes um, the way that I've shaped my new business is a community I want mm. members I want people in there I don't want people to just dip in and go back out you've got to be part of a community and so uh, the, again as I said things like Patreon um, I like when there's um, Black Ballad. You know Black Ballad? So Black Ballad is a platform for black women entrepreneurs. Okay. But it's subscription-based. You've got to pay. Okay. £10 a month to get access to the articles. Yeah. And like, love it. Why are you working and busting your ass to just give away that stuff for free, free. Yeah. when you can have a tribe who will invest? It's not a cost. Yeah. It's an investment in your craft and what it is that you're doing. So yeah, go and check out Patreon. Yeah. Check it. Yeah. Totally. And there are lots of people who won't do it because they're like, oh my God, I want to give... Look, if you work hard and you've got your value and if people are willing to invest in you... Then it's not a cost, it's an investment in you. And for me, I'm of the opinion, if people were to invest in me, and I like, as I said, I mentor, I coach, do, you know, I do, the majority of that is free, but there are times where somebody will say to me uh, within the community, Dave, I need you to help my son or I need you to have a conversation with a group of young black kids and what have you about. And I'll go and do that stuff for free mm. because I know you're sowing a seed back into the community and that stuff will come back and it will reap within the wider community. Mm. That for me is about creating your tribe. Patreon, mm. people. Go and have a look at it. Definitely. I'm definitely checking that Check out. Check it out. Um, so now I kind of want to move on to something slightly different, but again, it was on your LinkedIn page. Um, and just to give some context, so <coughs> we spoke off there and I mentioned it earlier that um, I've grown up in northwest London. Um, and the first time I can certainly think of um, a moment of, of violence that really rocked the community was Kyan Prince. Um, so Kyan Prince was a footballer. I think he played for QPR at the time, yeah. but he was also an athlete. So I used to see him all the time at um, Cocktail, where yeah. we used to do our athletics. Um, and he he went to school with a lot of my friends. He was just from the community. Um, and as the story goes, he, he, he was outside school one day, breaking up a fight, and he got stabbed in the leg and died. Um, and it was, a big, it was a big story at the time, a massive story at the time. Um, I see that you're, you were or are on the foundation. I, w- I was a trustee. Was, yeah, yeah, a trustee on the Kyan Prince Foundation. Um, I guess one, if you could sort of just talk about that, how how you ended up on it, what what the, what the work was, yeah, and then what we'll kind of go into a. 
bigger conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. about. About so Mark Kyan's dad was one of my oldest friends. I've known him since I was oh, 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so we, uh, I grew up, context, I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. Uh, Mark was as well. Um, we, Mark used to go to church in Woodgreen. I used to go to church in Wilsdon. But musically, football, all that kind of yeah. stuff, all the churches we used to kind of like meet and greet. So I knew Mark from way back when. Uh, and then obviously I knew him when he had, um, we kind of like grew, not grew apart, but we grew him and on with our lives. And then I found out when he had his, you know, his kids and what have you. Um, and then when when it happened, I remember Mark called me and like obviously you know a total mess and in tears, um, and um, I uh, I went and it was a um, it was even though I was slightly distant and that we were running our own lives when mm. it happened, it hit me. Mm. Um, and at the time, I was living in Enfield. Mm. And we didn't live too far apart from each other in Enfield as well. And I, you know, and just seeing that whole pain, going through that whole pain, was 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 a lot. It really was a lot. Um, and and obviously, Mark wanted to ensure that it didn't happen to other young people again. Mm. And I think it's a lot more complex. But you know, he wanted to make sure it didn't happen again. And so he set up a foundation and what have you, uh, and in memory and what have you. And I think a lot of people who's um, children or relatives have suffered, they do tend to set up foundation, charitable yeah. foundations to be able to deal with it. I honestly will say that I don't think there's enough joined up work in that space. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done around trauma, around uh, therapy that needs to be done for, you know, if you think about the amount of young men that were affected by that, mm. that never got any therapy, At all. that never got any counselling. And my thing, and women as well. Yeah. But my thing was, I wanted to be part of that community where we would deal with data so you know we got information from the the police and the london air ambulance and the the, the the hospitals around what was actually happening on the ground um and trying to change the conversation so that it would influence youth violence as a whole not just knife crime mm. so i was there as a trustee for a number of years um we had mark and i had slight differences about the direction that i thought it could actually go but for me it was pivotal about being able to raise and flag what was happening in the in in the community around mm. youth violence uh, Mark and I are still good friends, yeah. Um, and I'm still a, a, a supporter and ambassador yeah. of it, but I just no longer sit on the actual trustee board uh, for it. And as as a parent, then, yeah, because um, I obviously I, I I experienced it from the perspective of a young person. He he was in my year, I think. I'm pretty sure he was in my yeah. year. Yeah. So um, I experienced it from the perspective of a young person as a teenager, but from the perspective of a parent. Um, particularly because he got stabbed in school or by the school gates or whatever, that's where you expect your child to be safe. Yeah. Um, what What was it like almost dealing with that? How, how, how do you even, even till today, I mean, people are getting killed left, right and centre, in London especially, um, but across the UK, like, as a parent of two daughters, um, I know violent crime doesn't affect women as much as it affects men um as it as in as the victims of violent crime anyway um but yeah as, as a parent how, how do you deal how do you interact with that i think it's bloody hard mm. um i felt hollow mm. like i can't one of my biggest fears is outliving my children okay mm. like if i have to put that out there that's one of my biggest fears mm. and 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 i've seen parents have to navigate that space and obviously you have to deal with it and adapt with it but that stuff just makes you feel hollow and and a lot of the stuff that the, a lot of the underpinning when I was running my youth company education company a lot of it was I use a lot of humour you know that's how I yeah. am I use a lot of humour and one of the things I wanted to do that was just just get 
a lot of young men to see how stupid it was yeah. to have your masculinity and manhood defined by a few words and people who don't even really care about you. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I did that was that was my counter argument to say to guys, you know, I, I, so I gave I give examples of when I've got mugged and, you know, one time I got I nearly got mugged in in Brixton and I started screaming in the street and picking the thing out of my hair and the poor guy who went to mug me started running away because he's thinking who the hell is this guy and I share this story tactic. in schools and people referral units and prisons and 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 people are killing themselves absolutely laughing yeah. and then they're like why didn't I think of that you know. Um, and, and, and although I know it's a lot more complex than that, I do believe there's a many-pronged approach to dealing with youth violence. Mm. But I think a lot of it goes, at the heart of it, goes to dealing with trauma. And I don't think that there is, you know, I don't know how, to be, to be fair, I'm, I'm tangentially, I don't know how much it is in the West African community, but I know specifically in the Caribbean community, they just do not like the concept of ther- uh, therapy or mm. talking to anybody outside of your family. Oh, no, it's the same, same, it's the same. same in West African communities. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and look, and, and the thing is, is, for me, I found it problematic in church because a lot of the stuff that was going on in church that wasn't being dealt with mm. was not being dealt with because people didn't want to talk about it. And um, for me, there's some, there's some... It's not just one thing because it is poverty. It is poverty of expectations as well. That is really um, key. You know, you know that you, in many ways, were an exception to the rule in going to mm. a grammar school. Um, you know, I've done work at London Academy where, um, where Kyan yeah. used to go. Um, you know, fact, I did, got turned I, into an academy yeah. because of what happened. Yeah, and I I did work down at without saying it when when white white fields when they had issues yeah, there yeah. as well and i know that the, that poverty of expectation i used to go in i used to talk to students and go raise the bar mm-hmm. right you know raise raise seriously raise the bar um and so you've got that combination of low expectations you've got poverty you've got um uh elder people who are my age who aren't passing on skills and who aren't mm-hmm. passing on values that younger people could really take and run with um, and then again, you've got that whole thing of trauma around domestic violence, around drugs, around all that stuff that's happening in your community and very few outlets where someone can go to you. Do you know what? I actually hear what you're going through. Mm. The fact that, you know, whatever a teacher's cussing you in school because you're tired and you're like, I didn't have any food. Mm. I got no food. And, 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 and someone saying to you, you need to get seven GCSEs to get a job. And someone's going to carry these three bags and you'll get two and a half grand. Mm. And all that stuff plays into how you have to survive as a young person. If you're not from a background or a community that goes, look, don't do that or I'm going to knock you the hell out or send you back home, okay? It's very easy to go down that route and mm. uh, and get caught up into that. I, I, it's so easy. And as a parent, to not only what I would say my own children, but the wider community. Because for me as a parent, I, it is a wider. I see you guys yeah. as my, you are, you are my children, all right? Mm. And for me, being able to share that with you and even being part of this podcast is, mm. a, is a, for me, it's a duty as a parent to speak to younger people about mm. how I see the world, how I value it. That thing is incredibly important because when we lose one child, we all get affected. Mm. I remember when Damilola Taylor got, um, mm. Mm. died. Mm. That hit me in my soul. I don't know Damilola, mm. okay? Interestingly enough, I know John, John Boyega. Mm. And, you know, we had a conversation about it. Yeah, yeah, same era. Um, and, but there have been so many others and, you know, and, and there are a host of other, <clears throat> other young people and, and it's traumatizing. Mm. And I think it's very complex, but I do think as parents, it is our, our duty, not just to our own children, but to other children to keep them safe yeah. and to work in partnership with many other, whether it's school, whether it's the community, whether it's the police, although, you know, that's going to be debatable, all these other, um, institutions 
that can help our children to be safe. And I, I make no bones about it. I moved my children out of North London because I wanted them to have a safer space. Mm. We lived in Enfield. And I'm going to tell you now, as a detached youth worker in Enfield, the stories I got of girls being initiated to go into gangs and being bribed by guys to go into threesomes or taking drugs or being raped. I'm like, I'm not, oh having, I'm not having that happen to my daughters. That's, not a, it. that's a very interesting question, actually, in terms of the balance. Yeah. Because <clears throat> it's... it's <clears throat> what's her name? Um, Diane Abbott got in trouble for this as well in terms yeah. of pulling her son out of a... Or rather, sending her son to a private school yeah. rather than a local comprehensive in Hackney. Um, and this kind of idea that when when you've got the resources, when you've got the means, rather than stay in the community and kind of help it on the ground, it's easier to move out. Now, obviously, in your case, it's, you haven't stopped. Like, you, you continue, you're part of the community in terms of, aside from just living there. Yeah. Um, but just in general, this idea that when you do reach a certain social status, when you do have enough money, when, you, when, when you're now thinking about your kids and your kids are your world, it's, it, it only makes sense to leave the community. But in leaving the community, you're now leaving a hole where otherwise you would have been that, that father figure for people on, on, on your street or, yeah. or, or whatever, whatever the case may be. Kind of, how do you, and how do we as, as millennials even going forward, how do we navigate that balance of, of, of looking out for ourselves, mm. but also making sure that we look out for our own, our, our families? So I think there's two things. Yeah. So firstly, I will make no apologies about the fact that I paid for my eldest girl to go to private school. Yeah. Make no apologies about it at all. I had the money, I had the means. Trust me, we went to the wire a couple of times, all right? Yeah. But I had it, I make no bones about it because I know that my daughter going to a private school and being part of an alumni will set her up economically, okay, so I'm just going to speak economically now, and in terms of that network for life. Mm. My youngest daughter is just finishing her GCSEs this year, and the same private school that my elder, she didn't want to go to private school, she's like, oh, I don't want to go to that, I'll just go to a nice state school. And mm. uh, So she went to St. Albans Girls, mm -hmm. all right? But now she wants to go to the private school. I'm like, I'll pay for it, mm -hmm. I'll go. I make no bones about that, because for me, if I can do something that can really make an advantage to my children, that will give them a better chance of success in life, and they'll put them on a different trajectory to go somewhere else, I will do it. I make no bones about mm. that. However, on the flip side, and this is the second point, that does not stop me from feeding back into those who don't have that opportunity mm. because not every parent has an opportunity for their child to go in. But I, I, work, I do a lot of work with young mentor and I've worked with young mentor for about the last five years and I've been saying in, our, in our, the community, if you are an African or Caribbean or, or, you know, or, uh, or African or Caribbean with, with straight African or Caribbean or mixed children and your child is bright, get them tested to go into mentor. Mm. Get them Sorry, tested. Can you tell us what, I, I don't know what it is. Mensa, so Mensa is a high IQ. Okay. Uh, Mensa is the, where the most intelligent people in the in, in the country go. They got mad mad IQ. You give them like a okay. math problem. They look at it like, man, you're probably a Mensa, but you don't even know it yourself, right? <laughs> probably go in there, bang it out, maths and that stuff, and, and all that kind of the thinking and the processing yeah. just comes to them like that. Okay, so that's the most intelligent. So mad scientists are really kind of like really powerful lawyers who are really, really intelligent and they just know how to... <laughs> and they've got this incredible IQ. And so they've... Benzo's like the, the... I think you have to have over 120. And to be fair, like, have you ever heard of the Amaphidon family? No. So they're the four... Uh, they all they 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 pass the GCSEs like earliest. So there's Anne Maria Maffedon. She's about in her early twenties. There's her uh, there's two of the twins. So they've got the like they're the youngest family to pass their GCSEs A levels. I think Anne Marie graduated from 
Cambridge, age 19, with a master's in... As you did. Copy yeah, over, over yeah, overachievers. Yeah. Proper, proper. And their dad's like proper, the like, in, they're bright as hell. And he teaches. So brightest, the brightest people in the country are black. Yeah. Let's keep it 100. Yeah. Brightest family in the, in, in the country are black. But a lot of people don't know how to get part of that or be part of that community. So mm. I go there and I speak every year. I'll do it. Earlier this year, I was up in, uh, in Cambridge talking as part of the Oxbridge program and saying to young students who are really bright, you can get into Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. Um, the alumni who go there, I reach out to them. I go, hey, what are you guys doing? Would you like to get involved in doing some stuff in the community? Some students aren't going to go to university. So what do we do? We talk about enterprise. How can we get them going to set up their own businesses? Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I remember I was walking down in Brixton and I saw a group of guys, there were about four or five guys. And I, and I walked up to them and I was in a suit and I saw these guys. And I looked at them, I said, how you doing, gents? And they go, pardon me? I go, how you doing, gents? They go, yeah. And I go, who are you? I said, my name's David McQueen. I said, if you want to, while I'm standing here, go and search me on Google, but I'm going to be here for a little while. How many of you guys, oh, man, I can do it. I'm a businessman, I'm a businessman. I said, all right, then let me pick my brain for the next hour. They go, what are you talking about? I said, pick my brain for the next hour. I said, you guys, you guys hungry? And they're like, yeah, yeah, well. I took them to the chicken shop, mm. bought them all food. All right, not in my card cash. But we all came back, right? I'm just joking, banter. We all came back, sat down, and I took them through this whole hour of being able to do their business. Mm. And saying, I said, look, at the end of the day, you do what it is that you want. People are going to make assumption that you're going to do it illegally. But this is what you can do. If you think of a really good idea, find a customer who will buy it, and you can be honest, you can make a really good business. Mm. And they were like, yeah, thanks, me, yeah, thanks. And went. Mm. Those little touch points for me make a massive difference. Huge difference. Uh, I spend a lot of time specifically mentoring black women founders okay mm. um, we as black guys we have a lot and we have banter and we all have the conversation but they're okay I'm not they're right but yeah but I spend a lot of time doing that because yeah. I think there's a lot they're incredible the fastest growing entrepreneurial group in this country are black women mm. alright and there's a and when we think about black house, households and wealth black women hold that wealth so what should we do as a community to be able to encourage that Guys tend to go more for the secure job. Women do as well, but women will go and they will take the risk and they will build a business. And so for me, I will sit and I will advise and I will encourage. And again, this is why I'm creating this incubator and really encouraging more black men and women to really be part of it. So I think there's a lot of touch points we can have. And when I left Enfield, I didn't leave it and just left the vacuum. Mm. I went and I went back for at least two or three years and I trained up other people who could take my role. take your place, yeah. So like, you know, now I've stepped away from education Almost, you know, next time I'm going to be 50. Yeah. There's only so much mum and dad jokes I can go into a school for the yeah. rest of my life and go and have banter with students yeah. with. A new generation can come in and I pick up the gauntlet and run with it. Mm. And for me, it's recognising that at the end of the day, the important thing is purpose, not the person. 100%. 100%. Okay? So as much as I can go and do it as the person, it's the purpose behind it. And who are those people who can pick up the banner and run with it in terms of understanding the purpose? Mm-hmm. So when you stop, other people go and run with it. Mm. So it did, it did hurt me to move out there. And sometimes, you know, I look <laughs> where I'm living now. Sometimes I go down the road and when I see black people, I'm like, oh, joy, look, you know, it's, one the, it's one of the black people. <laughs> the black and like, you know, no, and that's it. I do the nod. All right, sometimes people don't even know what it is. At yeah. They're like, what's that? Why are you nodding your head at me? <laughs> but I do the nod. And actually, very quickly, sorry, I know I get excited about this, that's okay? Right. But that's one thing I think is missing. Mm. if enough young black people knew what the nod was I think it could change a massive dynamic when I see black people my age guys any part of the country and I walk down the road we give each other the nod yeah 
Doesn't matter who you are, okay? And when you're walking around, we walk, like, I could be in deepest Gloucester, Cornwall, <laughs> up in Scotland, in Glasgow. I was in Glasgow, walking down the road. Two black guys walked towards me. I was like, and they were like, they're not clean up in Scotland. I went and bought them chips with joy, fam, right? But that nod is a, is it's that connection, like, you know what? I see I you. See you. Yeah. I see you. I you know, it's almost like. Yeah. Yeah, all it's the time, all the time. I even get it hit sometimes yeah. as well, yeah. But there's a generation where you nod and like, what are you looking at? your generation as well. Yeah. You will nod. No, what are you looking at when you nod? Yeah. Well, I'm nodding at you, I'm happy. <laughs> like, how, how did you so escalate? Yeah. Why, why, why was this nod so aggressive? Why did you get, get so much question from my nod? And I'm smiling at you, or I'm like... I was like, acknowledging <laughs> you, bruv. I mean, I don't get it from you, because I just say hello, and if they get on stupid, I say, I just acknowledging you, bruv. That's how I am. I'm an elder, and that's what I do. But I think that bit, if that essence could be duplicated I don't know how but yeah that nod is important important. and um, I guess I've got two questions one because you spoke about speaking in Oxbridge and it's been it's been like a hot topic lately about particularly Oxford not letting not having enough um, black students in and so on and so forth Uh, me and Salome went to the same uni that's how we know each other um, which was a Russell group university and I've been listening to this debate with a bit of I don't know if caution's the right word, but I, just, I, I almost don't really get it because I, 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 I kind of feel like, I feel like people are having the wrong conversation or the wrong argument. Drop it, drop it. And what I mean is that I don't, I feel like the problem is that we've allowed Oxford and Cambridge to monopolise the elite of society, for want of a better term. Yeah. And that's really the problem. Yes. Not the fact that they're not letting black people yeah. in. Because at the end of the day, we can study anywhere, we can, like, it... Or rather, I guess what I'm trying to say is they've set a bar and they've said, this is what you need to do to get in. If you make it in, you make it in. If you don't make it in, you don't make it in. There are lots of brilliant universities around the country that lots of smart and talented people can and do go to. Um, I didn't even apply for Oxbridge because I just, I just, like I said, I wanted to stay in London. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, literally. Um, But it's like, I feel like the real issue is that we're placing so much value on Oxford and Cambridge, and not to say that they aren't inherently valuable and they shouldn't be, but I think the issue is the fact, really the issue is the fact that whatever percentage of prime ministers have either gone to Oxford or Cambridge, rather than the fact that Oxford or Cambridge aren't letting black people in. And I'm kind of getting tired of this discussion, like let us in, let us in, let us in. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, I don't know, I, I kind of see that as a victim mentality that like, can you please put the rope down so so I can climb up? Mm. And it's not it's not about people helping us. Like white people aren't going up to black people saying, Can you can you let me it, it's kind of playing into that power dynamic when there's a much larger issue that I feel like people aren't discussing. I don't know what you think about that, but I, it's it's been something that's been bugging me for a long time and you're now my my outlet to, yeah, okay, <laughs> to, to rant about it. Okay, it's good. It's good. <laughs> So I, I agree with you. Mm. There is a problem, I believe, that we have in the black community, and it's the proximity to whiteness to define a lot of stuff that we do. Mm. So there, is the, there are the, the jobs, the, uh, the assets that we can acquire, the social circles that we can get into because of the proximity to whiteness. Mm. I, I've never done that. I never will do. Mm. I, there's so much going on with my blackness that I don't need to look outside of it. Mm. Um, and I actually even think that comes along with things like awards and MBEs and OBEs and people vying to go into it. I've seen in many ways how that system works. Mm. I want none of it because I'm not a royalist anyway. Yeah. And I do believe there's enough integrity and beauty within the... With, I, I love the fact that if I can help 
and work with a couple of people within my community who, who look like me and who sound like me, that's enough that I need. I don't need all those other kind of accoutrements mm. that come along the way. And what happens is, is you realise, I, I believe that as a uh, uh, going into Oxford and Cam- Cambridge is desirable. Um, but it should be a means to an end as opposed to an end of itself. Mm. And so people go, okay, I went to Cambridge and then that becomes the mark of who you are and then you become this person. I go, no, but I went to Cambridge because the level of education that I wanted to was there and that's what I aspired to. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, and, and again, I, I, I like you, I take a couple of issues with the fact that, uh, well, with David Lammy and his position on it. He's you know. going ham. And I yes. just think, relax, please. And I, and I think, <laughs> and, 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 and there are, obviously he's always going to get the, the those people who think he's playing a race card and yeah, all this kind yeah, of yeah. nonsense and what have you. But I, I, I do believe it's a lot wider. Mm. So the response is that, and, and these people aren't stupid, the response is that you've got back from Oxford is that we have a wide, diverse range. Mm. So we let Asians in. Yeah. We let whatever. And you kind of like, look, you go, look, the proportions of Chinese and Southeast Asian students that you let in in comparison to Caribbean and African yeah, is disproportionately it, wrong. Oh, what's the other thing they say? Oh, well, too many go for the medical courses. We need more to go for history and music. No, we want to be doctors. <laughs> yeah. Right? We don't want to be out there just playing little cello. Okay, God bless Shaku and, you know, and his little <laughs> thing. And, and, uh, you know, he's a lovely guy and his family. God bless him and what have you. But we, that's what we want to go for. Mm. And then when you find out even deeper that our applications as African and Caribbeans get checked 21 times more than mm-hmm. other ethnic groups, there's something systematically wrong with that. Mm. And playing the game for me is important. I would, and I encourage, students who are bright enough to get into Russell Group Universities mm. because I believe the level of effort and education and the network that you get from that is important. Not just so you can get a good job. Yeah, but just... Because I think that education should be... Education should be in and of itself. Mm. If you're just educating just to get a good job and what have you, I think you've missed the whole point. You've missed the mark. I think you should have the learning. And when people are only focusing on education just as a way of means to get a a job, I think that's when it becomes transaction, you've missed the whole point. Education as a whole should be about learning. Learning about yourself, learning about the wider world, as well as a specific subject. The truth is, if you go and finish a degree, you probably don't use half of the things you do in your degree in your job anyway. Let's keep it real. I have a law degree and I'm a lawyer and I still don't think I use my law degree. <laughs> okay, I do. Right. Nice, yeah. I, I'm like looking at tort and contract and English legal system. I'll tell you what I use. I use contracts, right? I'm the top done when it comes <laughs> like, to contracts, okay? Contracts like, you'll never believe. But you're not going to sit there citing cases and stuff so <laughs> like a snail in the bottom of your ginger boy who cares about that alright um, but they're, they're again as you said I think what you've got to realise is that by just shouting at it or shouting at a system it's not going to cure it because we live in a country that is institutionally racist mm. it's not that we should sit back and not do anything about it mm. but you have to be aware of it mm. we get stopped more because of the colour of our skin and being black males, than any other ethnic, ethnic group. Um, we will get um, uh, in cars. The same will happen when stop and search on the street. Um, youth violence is a national um, issue, Probably, yeah. but it will be uh, limited to black. There's more per capita, there's more knife crime in Cleveland and Durham than there is in London, but you never hear it in the news. No white guys are out there stabbing white women like you'd never believe if you go and have a look at the figures, but all you hear about is young teenage black men. That's the predominant narrative. Mm. And when it comes to things like Cambridge and what have you, is you realise, look, it's, it's, it's good to keep knocking on a door. Don't get me wrong. I mm. think it's really good to keep knocking on a door and have these groups that keep on saying to young students, you can do it. 
I think it's important. But it's also cognizant to realize that the system is designed in such a way that they don't want. That's why for me, my daughter's going to a private school has really upped the opportunity. When my daughter was at the private school, I remember she was in year 11. She said, Dad, we've got opening evening, two opening evenings. One opening even was Cambridge. The other opening even was Oxford. Mm. As standard. Yeah. Whereas it's, in other groups, they're like, yeah. you have to kind of... That was, that was the expectation. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I want my kids to be in there because I want them to see what the... Op- my daughter was like, I ain't going to Cambridge, Dad. I'm mm. not, it's not for me. All right? But I wanted them to see what that possibility looked like, at mm. least. And that's the important thing. Yeah? LSE. Yeah. LSE. That's LSE, though, right? Okay, right. We're good. We're good. We're good with LSE. But I want people to see that there is as an opportunity. But I'm not going to knock on the door and ask for quotas. I don't want people bending over backwards to do that kind of stuff. I don't I don't. I don't. For some people, it's cool. But I don't want that. You know, at the end of the day, you go and work. And work, you know, and it's nice. You know, obviously, George went to Cambridge and what have you. and. Um, and, and, and it's great, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all, and I don't mm. think it should be on the pedestal that people necessarily Crazy. put it on. And also that kind of, that rhetoric, even for me, made me think like, you know, going into employment, like, am I here because I'm black? They let me in. Exactly, you know? yeah. And then, and I actually, I didn't really even know that it was there in my subconscious, and then um, there was something when I was doing my, my LPC, well, we had to write down our results, and I realised that oh, my results are better than most people's in this in my intake. Mm. And I, I was feeling for the first seven months that oh my gosh, I'm here because I'm black. I'm somehow I'm, I'm here because you know of, was, was it positive discrimination? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't true. Like yeah. you were just but, damn good. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> the impact it has the on your mentality. Has, I yeah. actually had to like kind of unlearn that. Yeah. You no, know, you walk into a room and you know that you're definitely qualified to be there yeah. and if they're hiring you it's because of you your yeah. merit yeah. And, and your merit and your personality and everything else as opposed to we need to tick a box mm. and it's that also that can be quite destroying thinking that you are that box yeah. totally and that's why I, I always say this and, I, and I'll say it from the bottom of my heart I say to black women you ain't got time for imposter syndrome mm-hmm. mm. you ain't got time you know why yeah. you work doubly hard <laughs> yep. to get to the top of that class to excel left, right, and center. And I'm specifically saying this across the board. I say, you ain't got time for it as black women. You know you got there. Mm. You go and have a look at the piece of paper and you go and have a look at the effort that you made to go in there. You know you got here by bloody hard work. There's no question about it. Mm. No question about it. You ain't got time for that. Mm. ain't got time for it. I know, I'm not saying black women can't have imposter syndrome. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying that I, I, like to, mm. I like to flip the conversation out and go, do you know what? The reason why you're there is because you're good enough. Mm. Not anything mm. else is because you're good enough. Um... So this conversation's all flip-flopping in different ways. Well, but I like the way it's I, Yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted to get back to the sort of gang violence thing yeah, that's fine. as well. Um, I mean, I know personally like, a reason why I started this podcast was that I just feel like it's needed. I feel like there's, there's a need for hope in the community. And yes. I think there's a need for quote-unquote role models, as, yeah. as, as, what, what always, as people always talk about. Um, but kind of, and it's something you spoke to earlier off-air and on-air, on about this kind of the disjointed nature of so many different things we we all have this same goal to empower improve the black community to bring down knife crime to deliver hope and so on and so forth but we're all doing it in our various silos um how how can we come together what's missing to to get us to come together to to sort of have a have a coordinated approach in 
I mean, we can talk about knife crime here, but there's all all sorts of issues that we're dealing with in the black community, and there's also all sorts of aspirations and things we're trying to do that we could get done better if we all work together. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Like, how how do we how how do we make that happen? I think for, the first thing for me is to be very very conscious of what our expectations are. Mm. I think that's the first thing because you can get very disappointed very easily if you don't set what those expectations are. I've realised that with this podcast. Yeah. Probably, yeah go on, yeah. <laughs> but the, the other thing is, is realising that there are, when one or two people are engaged in a conversation, that's a start. Mm. And you cannot beat yourself up with a star. Mm. There will be, I'll give you a quick example. So um, I went into my barber's the other day and they were, I didn't used to go barber's trades because I didn't, whatever. Uh, so up in Watford, I found this barber's and I was like, mm. There's another guy, and I was like, you know, I just want to go with my black people because we're always going to have stupid banter in there. Mm. It's going to be ridiculous banter, especially when the older guys come in. And then I hear some stuff of the, that was happening with some of the, the younger guys, and there was a bit of trouble. And they weren't in school. And I said, you know, I've got a little idea. I'm going back there this week. I've got a little idea. This was last week when I went in. I said, uh, I'm going to start this little project called A Cut Above. All right? And they look at the barbers like, looking at me, what does that mean? I go, I want these young people know, them to know that they're a cut above. Right? Mm-hmm. They're not the standard, but they're a cut above the rest. I want to use that as a metaphor. And I said, I'm, I want you and me to find 10 elders or 10 guys that come into this barbershop on a regular. And what we're going to do for all the guys who raise the bar, who do well, who keep out of trouble, who attain well, we'll pay for at least two of their haircuts. I was like, how, many, how often do they come in? Some come in once a week, some come in twice a month. I said, I'll pay for their haircut. Mm-hmm. 20 pounds, it it's, no, it's, 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 it's nothing to me. No skin off your back. 10 of us can come together, 200 pounds, the barber benefits. Okay, mm. and these guys can come in, we can come in, we can get our hair cut, we can come in on a Sunday and have a one-to-one, just talk to those guys, just bounce. It's 20 young people, all right, for the sake of argument, 10, 20 young people. My thing is, is just even with a simple thing like that, you start to make an impact. Mm. And when you teach somebody some of the principles you do and you say to them, look, I'm teaching you this, but you have to promise me that you do the same for somebody else mm. as well. Those things are replicable. So I've got a friend, he got married, um, he's a Jewish guy, he got married. And the parents bought him this house, right? And I'm like, Lord, if my parents bought my house, I'd I'd be happy. But there was something about the fact that he wasn't expected to pay them back, but Mm. do the same to somebody when he is older as well. Mm. That that Mm. blew my mind. It's very deep, yeah. That blew my mind. The investment is the investment. One of my bosses, when I was working, he was 40 and he was still living with his mum and dad. And I'm like, he was married and living with his Indian guy. Living with his mum and dad, yeah? yeah. Living with his mum and dad at 40. I'm like, right, that's deep for the wife anyway. Do you let me know? That's kind of deep. Uh, And then I remember when he turned 41, he bought a house in um, near Brent Cross, in Barnaby, but I can't remember what the area's called. In Brent Cross, just around the corner. Crickwoods, Hendon. The other side, Hendon, in Hendon. He bought a house in Hendon. If you see the house, all right, he probably put 20% down. Mm. No, no. He probably had a 20% mortgage. Let me put it mm. that way. So he put enough money down in order to get. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Because the money was saved while he was at his house. Mm. And I'm like, there are so many things that can be done economically, educationally, spiritually, emotionally within a community. And all it just takes is a small amount of like small fires to be Mm. able to start that. So, for example, I know a lot of my Nigerian friends uh, or my close Nigerian friends have got a real interest in property. So they will buy property back home. 
They will buy an investment flat here before they've even bought their own house and mm. they're generating that kind of income. And I'm like, rah. We were never kind of like, as Caribbeans, we never taught that you had your house, you had your house back in the Caribbean, but you were never taught that way. Mm. And I'm like, listen, you guys, you need to come together. I'm going to go and put together a seminar so you can come and we can teach people how to do Trying that. To do that yeah. uh, again, I've got another friend who's um, from Ghana and she does this thing where she does, it's like Airbnb, but she does service accommodation. So she will rent out flats to people. And she makes much, she doesn't own the property, mm. but she makes all this money from service accommodation, renting it out. And there were three of them. I'm like, you guys, you need to come and teach Brother mm. Dave about this stuff as well. And what I've realized, all it just takes is one or two of these things and the principles to be learned and it disseminates. To, and and one of the disadvantages, and the last point I'll say about this, one of the disadvantages about thinking collectively as black people within the UK is sometimes we forget that we are actually quite different. Yeah. Yeah, very So diverse. you think of a, you know, the, if you think of a Jewish community, it's very much around faith, around, you know, the, the rituals of Jewish community, mm. that's fine. If you think of a Sikh community, Sikh, I think the Sikh community have something like 75 to 80% home ownership as a group. <coughs> but they're landowners, they're property owners, that's what they always thought, and to a certain extent, in Pakistani and what have you. And I'm not just talking about all, because obviously there's a poor section yeah. of the community as well. But because politically we've been brought together as a black community, umbrella, sometimes yeah. we forget that there is Ghanaian, there is Jamaican, there is Trinidadian, there is Barbados. And even, even when we talk about Nigerian, there is Yoruba, yeah. there is Igbo, there yeah. is, you know, there, is that, those, the, there are those differences. And although sometimes we get to come together politically as a black unit, yeah. sometimes the work needs to be done within those communities first. Yeah, and then brought up. And then be brought up, and right. then you see it collectively. Mm. Because I don't think everybody coming together and going, oh, you know, we're a black collective, we're all going to be together. It doesn't work like that. Mm. Just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. So I think there's something about that overarching empowerment about Pan-Africanism and working together as black people, but I still think it needs to be done within the smaller communities that, that understand that. being first. said, I've got a theory. Go ahead. It's because we've got time, to be honest, that That's right. talking about all these different things. But I've got a theory that, yeah. that within not the next generation, but the generation afterwards, so my grandkids, I don't have kids yet, but if my grandkids are not going to identify as any given country... Well, I hope not, but I, I genuinely think this is going to happen. And they're just going to identify as black British because I feel like there's such a strong, especially now, especially with music as well, um, there's, there's a very strong kind of black British identity and culture forming. And a lot of my friends that are my age that have kids, their kids are just from other... They're, they're just having kids with other black British people rather than with a Nigerian or with a... Ghanaian or, or whatever so a lot of kids are now from two or three different countries yeah. and that and they're one or two steps removed from the home country mm -hmm. and then in turn their kids and then their kids yeah. to the extent where someone might be from 10 different countries not really identified with any of them but they all know Stormzy and so, or, or whoever it is at the time yeah, and yeah. I, I, I personally see kind of a black British culture or not culture but identity developing mm. aside from kind of these home nations because I think as much as the home is very important in terms of socialisation and who we end up believing who, who we are so too is how people label us mm. and I think especially in London I can't speak outside of London because as I've quite openly admitted I've never lived outside of mm -hmm. London but especially in London we're just you're, you're black you're black first and you're whatever else next mm. um, and I wonder as time progresses how much that conversation is going to have to be just a black British conversation rather than in the silos because I don't think people are really going to identify with the silos as much but that's my 
That's my theory. I don't, I don't know whether that will come to pass or not. I, I don't know, but I definitely have. I've definitely have made a, a massive effort to make sure that my girls know that I'm Caribbean roots. Yeah. Now I want my kids to be I, very I definitely Nigerian, because I feel part I of there's something about even with the Black British identity. I still think I I will define myself as Black British, mm. but I still feel like I need. I don't have somewhere where I can call home. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, here right there's still but there's still a bit, and my Brexit. good friend JJ Bola wrote a book similar to that called No Place to Call Home. I'm, I'm stealing his title, mm. um, but there is you know when I go to the Caribbean, I love it, but I'm seen as that British guy. Yep, yep. And then when I'm here, it's still you're still you're not you're ever fully British. You're yeah. Black British. Yep. It's like an American. You know, everybody apart from white Americans have got a, 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 um, a, a prefix. American, yeah. African American, Native American, Asian American. Yeah. But if you're white, you're just American. American yeah. And again, similar here in Britain, you're British, but you know, you don't hear people going up to white people and going, "Where are you from?" Yeah. In the same way. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Yeah, but it I think, up. yeah, I think a big part of what makes a black. Quote, quote, British identity is the home nations of, of sorts and that's we'll, well, I mean they say in our generation we're able to identify as like oh you're from Jamaica and you're from Nigeria oh and then I have Jamaican friends so then if I meet another Jamaican I'm like oh whereabouts oh yeah my friend is from you know so then that that's how we kind of formed our bonds mm. almost because we were from we were from yeah. so yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see how much that kind of other having the home country, yeah. I, I spent Christmas. I got sent back. You know, yeah. yeah. I got sent back to school. So that in itself is yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. a conversation started with yeah. anyone else that's been sent back. Sent back. Where yeah. did you go? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so then, then that that to me that is my Black British identity. It yeah. is how literally how being born and raised in London interacts with the fact that you're still from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, I'm. I'm con- even though I'm not conscious of time, I'm also conscious of time. So, um, I guess what's next for David McQueen? We we kind of spoke a bit about it off the air. Yeah, but yeah. So my 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 big project, and for me, this is. So I've got the company I was talking about is called Legacy Seventy One, mm-hmm. and I'll explain it very quickly. So I believe that as black businesses, we need to build businesses that will last beyond us. There is a real. There is a real. Um, uh, drive within the business community to build a company, flip it, sell it, and go mm-hmm. with it. Um, but I, I, when I look within other communities, that's not what they do. If anything, they want to flip it out and do more than one. Mm-hmm. And I believe that within our African or Caribbean communities, what we need to do is we need to build businesses that should survive beyond us. Because mm-hmm. then we are creating wealth and generating wealth for the generation that's mm-hmm. come beyond us. When we look comparatively in economics, uh, uh, especially in, in the diaspora, so whether it's in Europe or in North America, in terms of wealth generation, we are behind and, and, and a lot of money is not put into stocks, it's not put into real estate, it's not put into businesses. Mm-hmm. And I believe that we can flip that by changing the actual narrative around it. And so Legacy 71, I, I set that up in February and I explained, so Legacy is the long part and 71, I like numbers, right? I was a bit of a math nerd. I love prime numbers because you can't divide them apart from the number that's into. So, so there's something about it's not divisible. I yeah. like that. Okay, so there's a metaphor there. But 71 in Christianity is the number of the Holy Spirit. 71 in Judaism is the number of wisdom. I think in Hinduism, it's a number of continuity. And in numerology, it's a number of business continuity. So even though I'm not a religious per se, I'm a spiritual person, I know that it hits a lot of points of connection for a lot of people where they can see, they can tap into the spiritual with that as well. And so the idea is, is that I'm setting up a platform for that enterprise. I will have uh, an academy which will teach people how a lot of the stuff that I've learned along the way, how to build a market, sell, hire, lead, really effective communities 
Um, the main point for me is about being able to create a community because I know when a lot of black founders come to me, they say, one of my biggest problems is finding a co-founder. I want to find somebody who can work with me who's got the skills, who's got the technology, who's got the marketing. I want to be able to do that. But also, my big thing, and I'll put it on camera, I make no bounds about this, I'm going to be able to raise a fund within the community as well. Mm. So my first fund is going to be a million pound fund. I'm getting a thousand people to putting a thousand pounds to invest in companies within the community. That's a million pounds. That's the first round. I'm going higher after that, but the proof of concept is being able to show that. And, and I've been really fortunate enough in that I know a lot of people who just fly under the radar, who don't mm. want to be known, but yeah. they are high net worth black individuals. Yeah. And I'm like, even if you don't want to be known, let's put some stuff back into the community mm. to nurture up a new or existing generation of entrepreneurs who really want to scale their, their business. So I'll continue doing my speaking and coaching and what have you, but where I believe I will really leave, my first kind of legacy was in education. Mm-hmm. And I believe personally, but the, the amount of work that I've done and the amount of lives that have, I've influenced and have influenced me, that was the first part of my legacy. I turn 50 next year, so I'm going on to the second innings mm. now, the second part of my life. That bit is going to be around how do we create wealth creation. So Legacy71.com is the, is the thing that I'm going to do, and I'll be out there. Trust me, even though I said I don't like fame, I'm going to be PRing the hell <laughs> out of that. It's and important. I'm going to be, and I really want to be able to not just do it and have the model here, but I'm taking it to the continent. I'm taking it to Africa. At the moment, I've kind of like lined up for King. So um, Kenya, Ivory Coast, Nigeria. Ghana and Sierra Leone, Kings. Okay. Like yeah. All right. Um, like uh, sorry, South Africa. Um, oh. And then I want to be able to do it in um, the Caribbean as well. And just say, look, this is the model I used. If you want to mm. replicate it, this is a way of being able to, 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 to do it. And that's my, you know, I look at all those guys like Richard Branson and I look at um, Oprah and I look at Magic Johnson and I look at Elon Musk and I look at all these guys and they were just, they were like, I've got this vision. I'm going to run with it. Elon mm. Musk is running out of money for Tesla, mm. but he's still going to go. He's still mm. going to go hard because he believes that whether it's Tesla, SpaceX or whatever else, he's going to really make it happen. Mm. And so I'm surrounding myself with some incredible people and just saying to people, look, the stuff that I'm doing is open source. Mm. When I was a speaker, I said it was open source. Go and have a look at what I do and replicate it. Mm. There's more than enough abundance in the world. Yeah. For us to be able to, abundance is out there, you know, and so that's my, that's my, my thing and to continue to mentor and to guide and to support people, um, to, I'm looking forward to another, I've been with my wife 30 years, so I'm looking forward to another, a whole load of more years with her as well. Congratulations for that. I'm happy. He's got, he's got, I got one, I'm working, work in progress, yeah, work in progress, but happy to kind of like talk about that as well. And I, and I will say that I have a, Although I, I, I love people generally, I have, there's a love in my heart for my black people. I've always mm. had it. It's just the Pan-African thing just runs through my yeah. veins from, from day dot. And whatever I can do to be able to support us as a community, economically, um, spiritually, in our relationships, and just as a whole, being able to live as a whole human being, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's me. Pleasure, pleasure yeah, being here. You. By the way, well, and, and that 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 really ties into to, to to what this is about. So, very grateful to have you here. Um, and then finally, there's two questions I like to ask all of my guests. Um, the first question is, if you could go back to when you were 25, I'm picking 25 as an arbitrary age for a mm-hmm, millennial, mm-hmm. but if you could go back to that that age range, basically, what advice would you give yourself? But this is for you specifically. What advice would I give my 25-year-old self? Exactly. Now that you've lived half that life. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Mm. That's the biggest thing I would say to myself. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. It took me a long while to get comfortable uh, in, in making them. When I made mistakes, I just made them. I was just like, what the hell? 
But mm. at 25, there was a real still a nervousness about it. I would go back and I would say to myself, don't be afraid. Surround yourself with people who support you, mm -hmm. um, but which I already had, but don't be afraid to make mistakes. And the second question is, to this audience of millennials listening, what's your advice to us, them? So to all, all the millennials who are, I'm going to look in the camera to say hello. To all the millennials who are, uh, who, who are listening is, um, define success on your terms. Somebody else said that as well, and I, I quite no. like that. Yeah, go on. Define sorry. success on your own terms, because it's very easy to, to believe. There, there are a lot of millennials who think they need to all have it done by the time they're 30. Mm. Right, have the house, have the business, have the money, and the, have, don't wor don't worry about that <laughs> because <laughs> because there there is no such thing as having it all and, I'm having, to like and having it done. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, I would rather you took your time and be happy than rush things. When I got married, and we got I got married at the age of twenty six. Mm. I think there were fourteen of us that got married that year around the same age. I think four of us are still together that I know of in that group. Wow, um, through divorce and through all the all things that have happened. Marriage ain't easy, and I'm going to say that to I'm going to say it now to millennials who are looking at it. Marriage isn't for everybody. Mm. Okay, why do you Even, say that? It's not for everyone. Mm. Some people are just not destined to be married. Some people just need to be left on their own. Mm. And I say that in the nicest way possible. You are not supposed. Some people are just not supposed to be with it. Or for some people, you might just want to live together. Mm. Um, it, but it's not for everybody. Mm. And there is this real pressure to kind of like you know, have your Instagram uh, capture of your engagement and you're down on the knee with a 5,000 pound yeah. ring and everybody kind of like, oh my God, and oh, I'm crying, even though we know you knew you were going to happen before, right? <laughs> oh, I'm crying and all this pressure and then the best wedding with all the bridesmaids who have the certain fit and the nice big bottom because you can't have any flat batty in your kind of in your kind of bridal party <laughs> or the guys have to have the nice head and I'm just like, nah. Nice just, head. <laughs> yes. Seriously, I know somebody, he, he, chose, he chose people that had a nice head shape <laughs> in his group party. That's how deep people are because they wanted it to look good on the gram. Yeah. I'm like, do it on your terms. Yeah. The people who matter, the people who matter are the ones that you need in your life who will make... People who don't matter, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Mm. You can cuss me. If you don't matter to me, I don't really care. Mm. If I don't know you and you don't matter to me, I don't, you can say what you say. But the people who matter to me are those are the ones who I want to feed into my life and feed out. Last thing I will say to you, friendships are going to change. Mm. The friends who you have now may not be the friends you have when you get to 50. Mm. Yep. And I've been fortunate in that my, my two ride or dies have been my, my, my best friend has been my best friend since I was five. Uh, and my other best friend has been my best friend since I was 16. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of other people that came in that space who came into my life and some that had to leave mm. for a season. Don't get hung up on the fact that you have to have that same group around you all the time. And keep your boundaries. Mm. You've got to know who it is you are. And you're always learning. But have a sense of, when I say success in your own terms, have a sense of who you are. And it's very difficult. And I'll say this, I get told off for it all the time. It's very difficult because we are coming with, and, and even as a parent, I've had to unlearn this. Parents, we have expectations of what we want our children to do. Mm -hmm. And we always, we almost end up trying to impose our way of life onto our onto children. It, yeah. And we don't even realize it. And, oh, you don't got to do it because you don't want to bring shame to the family or you want to do it. Honestly, you've got to live life on your terms. There are a lot of people who I know who are really intelligent who don't want to go into business because they're expected to be a lawyer, accountant, engineer, what have you, and that's what mum and dad expects. You've got to do it on your terms. Mm. You have to live life on your terms and just be safe. And laugh every day. You've got to laugh every day. At least once a Very day, important. laugh. Very important. At yourself. Very important. Yeah, that as well. That's <laughs> important. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for coming today, Pleasure. David. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I probably say this on every single episode, um, probably just to drive home the point. But I just think it's so important for people to to hear 
stories from your generation. Um, one, because I think a lot of a lot of young people don't see themselves at your age, um, especially in this kind of social media yes. generation yeah. world. Pretty much, it's it's only people below the age of thirty that are on it anyway, and we're so focused on that yeah. that we forget there's a much bigger picture and life is is much longer. Mm. And I think also there's there's a tendency of millennials yeah. um, to have conversations amongst ourselves yeah, yeah, yeah. about what we can do, what we should be doing. It's, I, I I get kind of frustrated about it. I probably shouldn't, but um, I I don't understand why why someone who's been married for a year should be giving marriage advice. You, you don't know anything. Um, why? I, I, yeah. I, yes. I really don't get it. So, like, for me, I, I find it so important that we do actually engage because there's so much, there's such a wealth of knowledge, of yes. experience, of everything from your generation that my generation just doesn't seem to, to mm. well, I don't want to say care about, but just doesn't seem to even tap yeah. into. And it's so important just hearing from you, getting your life experience, hearing your journey. Um, and I think it can be, unbelievably impactful so um thank you so much for coming um, and for taking the time out and um thank yeah you i, I look forward to building with you out off, yes. off, off this as well yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no it was, it, was, it was actually great how i found you yes just for those listening it was on twitter like um i tweeted out i've been tweeting out my stuff on a daily basis getting discouraged by the lack of retweets but that's that's me just being a bit impatient right, man. But, we'll, we'll um, get there We'll get there. We will get there. And David retweeted it saying, oh, this looks like a fantastic platform. And I was like, oh, I'd love to have you on. on it, and he responded with a picture of himself. <laughs> with his, you can't see me right now, but with his face in his palm, like, holla. And I was like, this, I like this guy. So, um, and ironically, no, we'd pleasure, actually man. met years ago. Yes, we did. Bumped yeah. into him. Um, I was walking through Soho. Um, and all of a sudden, I just hear, yo, Damini. And it was my friend, George, George the Poet. Yeah, yeah, and David was in the car and, and, and yeah. I actually recognised his face, but not who he was. But I'm, I'm glad that I now know who you no, are. It's all good. And man. we've it's had a fantastic good. conversation. Salome, thanks for coming down as well. Um, and yeah, thank you for those who've listened. And um, until next time, cheers. <laughs>